Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking secret Canadian films. We're talking cold winter blues. And we're talking another Emma Roberts movie. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking kill all the cunts, everybody. Oh boy, as soon as I heard that line, I was like, ding, ding, this is why Trace likes this movie. <laughs> we get not one, but two uses of the word cunt, so it's an automatic five stars for me. I'm just kidding. We are talking <laughs> Oz Perkins is the Black Coat's daughter, formerly known as February, everybody. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I'm very excited to have a conversation about that title. I know that there's a history there, but I'm super curious to hear people's thoughts on whether they prefer one title versus the other. Well, and I do have reasonings for both titles in interviews with Osgood Perkins, because, yeah, um, I mean, admittedly, the February title is um, a search engine's nightmare. I'm sure it's right. for SEO purposes is terrible, and I mm-hmm. bet you that's why they wanted to change it. But, uh, yeah, um, this is a... a bleak mm-hmm. cold chilly mm-hmm. little movie it is indeed and i i joke that it's another emma roberts movie i do love the idea that hey maybe we'll just start every month with an emma roberts film this year <laughs> i'm joking we're not going to do that but it was kind of fun whiplash to see her go from over the top jill nonsense madness mm-hmm. in scream four to barry understated here yes. i liked it a lot yeah no very much the I, I lots to say about the three performances here um mm-hmm. but joe this is your first time seeing the movie it is not my first time but i do really like it but this movie does have its super fans and mm-hmm. i am so excited to bring one on here today with us so everyone you may have read his work at sites like slash film the playlist and oh uh the austin chronicle he is also mm. the co-founder of certified forgotten a website and podcast Podcast that highlights the horror films that fall through the cracks of modern distribution. Please welcome Matt Monagle. What an impressive bio. And you know what? <laughs> I've never actually had anybody read the tagline that I wrote for Certified Forgotten out loud to me. It sounds pretty good. I like that. I think I'll keep it. It does sound really good. And actually, because um, Joe, you guessed it on Certified Forgotten, right? I have indeed. Yeah. I talked about a Spanish cult film. Okay. So what was it called? <laughs> Uh, what was it called, Matt? Oh, so you forgot? <laughs> it's called The Forgotten or something. It was some, uh, something like that. I don't want yeah. to. I'm, I'm a little embarrassed by both of us right now. But yeah, yeah I can tell you what it was about. I, I remember exactly. I remember start to finish in the conversation that we had. I just mm-hmm. like the, t- the It's title. a kind of like a Spanish ripoff of Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, that's really ironic that y'all two have forgotten mm. the movie that y'all talked about on Certified Forgotten. <laughs> You know yeah. what? I'm just keeping it on brand for Matt here. <laughs> I was going to say, we're probably not the, the best champions of our own motto if we can't remember the movies that we resurfaced. So It's totally fine. Because we tried. We, what, what we discussed on my episode was the uh, softcore porno horror comedy Deep Murder. So at least we remember oh, yeah. that one. And that one has come up frequently on the podcast. Yeah. 
<laughs> I was going to say, I have never seen Matt Donato, who's appeared on this show before, mm-hmm. my partner in crime and co-host. I've never seen him more delighted to be talking about a movie than Deep Murder. That was... And you know what? I was angry at how much I, how much I liked Deep Murder. It was a movie that shouldn't have been for me, and I actually really enjoyed. So both of you brought really good movies to me, and I hope that I can return the favor today. Well, that's that's why we're here. So yeah, the Black Coat's daughter, Matt. We both know that you love this movie. Can, mm-hmm. Why? What? What? What is this? Because I know even the film editor at the Austin Chronicle, Richard Whitaker, he likes to make fun of you for your adoration for this film, but like in, in a nice, friendly, teasing way. So. I'm just curious, what is it with this film? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, right? Like, we'll get into all the nitty gritty details mm-hmm. about what makes this movie, in in my opinion, great. And and I have a hard time on any given day, as any good film fan does, sort of landing on what a favorite movie is. You sort of have like a few mm-hmm. that you keep in your back pocket, but it's hard. Mm-hmm. Depends on your mood and like what you ate for breakfast and what you're feeling that day, which you're like, what is right. the number one? This has pretty consistently been my number one movie since I saw it. And I think the biggest piece about that is that everything that I struggle to articulate that I love about horror movies, every element of cinematography, every sound design, music selection piece, if you were to ask me to build a movie from the ground up that has all of my favorite horror things, Mm -hmm. it would look exactly like The Black Coat's Daughter. And I, I think that's it. It just, it so expertly combines so many things that I love about the genre and as I, I wrote years ago for Screen Crush when I was encouraging people to see this movie, it sticks the landing as hard as Carrie Strug. Like, oh, yeah. this is a movie that it is made in a lab for me. And I'm grateful that a lot of people seem to like it. And then there are a few other champions out there like Anya Stanley who mm-hmm. are on the front lines and yelling about it just as much as I am. Yeah, that's definitely a thing for me. Um, I first saw this movie um, at its Fantastic Fest premiere way back in 2015. Because everyone, this is uh, our, our, our 2015 entry into our underrated or underseen theme that we're doing for this first quarter of 2022. And mm-hmm. I'm interested to see what we, which option we all think this movie is. But um, I liked it a lot the first time I saw it. But I had a few quibbles. And honestly, it was a lot of how, how much disbelief the film was asking me to suspend. about certain plot points. I had a hard time getting over them on an initial watch. On a second viewing, it all clicked into place. And any of those, like, well, you really have to kind of, like, stretch the imagination to buy this. You know, like, would two parents of a murdered girl not know what their daughter's murderer looked like? But honestly, (laughs) going past that, I loved this so much more on a rewatch. And uh, it really, really holds up for me. And I think it does demand and reward repeat viewings. Oh, yeah. From the perspective of someone who had never seen this film, but has watched the legacy of it grow. And just as a sidestep, I would actually say, (laughs) uh, in hindsight, I don't think that this is underseen or underrated, because Mm -hmm. I, as soon as we announced that it was this one, people really lost their shit. And I'm not surprised at all. Like, this film clearly has a lot of people in its corner. And you can immediately understand why. Like, I went in thinking, okay, it's going to be a little bit slow. It's Mm -hmm. Oz Perkins, so the visuals are going to be fantastic. I didn't realize how much this would stick with me. Like, this is the cinematic equivalent of an earworm. It just kind of gets into your brain Mm -hmm. and lives there. And I think that's one of the reasons why people like it so much is that it seems so simple and it shouldn't be as effective as it is, but then it's really fucking memorable. It doesn't hurt, too, that it has a trio of performances, really, but we'll say just one performance at the at the heart of the movie that is just as good a performance as you'll ever find in a horror movie. Kieran and Shipka just 
takes this film, wears it like a cloak, like it is her movie, and she understands the character. It's clear that she understands the character and what the character is going through on on such an intimate level. You don't often see horror movies that have this caliber of performance in them. And that makes it fun, especially, Trace, you were talking about some of like the, the lowbrow moments, too. It makes it fun because it doesn't take itself all that seriously all the time. So it's not ponderous. It's just it's fun and it's playful, but it's committed. And it's it's a lot. It's a lot of different things. I'll just start throwing out descriptors and adjectives <laughs> until the episode is over. <laughs> I, I, I will co-sign on your praise for Shipka because there are so many little nuances to her performance. And it's just like watching her evolve. And again, this is a kind of a non-linear-ish narrative. So watching us kind of go back and forth through time and she nails every aspect. And I did watch the film with Oz Perkins' commentary on it. And he has nothing but praise for her as well. And also talks about how she really like, regardless of his work as a director and as a, as the screenwriter, like she brought so much to this role on her own during filming in mm. negative 40 degree weather, which I learned apparently negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit and negative 40 degrees Celsius is the exact the same. same thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It was fun for me to learn that this film was shot basically where I used to live. So basically from the 2000s all the way through to 2013, when I moved to Australia, I lived exactly where this film is shot. Well, not exactly. I did not live at a women's boarding school, (laughs) but uh, this was shot in Ottawa where I used to live and it is one of the coldest cities in Canada. So it, it was also weird to learn that I don't know that they shot this in winter because I saw somewhere that the snow is Parmesan cheese. Um, Comes up. It was definitely shot in February of 2015 over the course of 23 days. Okay. So in that case, it would be the middle of fucking winter and it would be cold as balls. (laughs) They just didn't like the snow that God was giving them. So they were like, let's bring in some Parmesan cheese. I mean, it's not guaranteed it'll snow in Canada in February. And there's a lot of places in Canada that don't always get snow. So uh, it does check out. (laughs) Just imagine going home from a day of shooting with just Parmesan cheese all in your hair. (laughs) Just shake your head over the pasta and you've got a, a good meal ready to go. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, let's go into the, the the production of this film because while I don't have a lot on the production itself, although I have a little bit, um, the release of this film was plagued mm. by insert twenty four by fill in the blank. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I think it was Direct TV. I'm gonna say it was Direct TV because this was like a co distribution deal, but. Anyway, so writer-director Osgood Perkins, and yes, everyone, we all know he is the son of Anthony Perkins. What? Uh, <laughs> I know. Shocker. Keep going. <laughs> it's, it's so, because whenever he, uh, Gretel and Hansel came out, you know, like, there are still people that are like, oh my god, it's like, let's talk about your dad, and you can tell he's just really oh my over god. that line of questioning. Him and Brendan Cronenberg probably need to start some kind of, like, therapy for famous dads, because <laughs> it's like, okay, we get it. We have followed in our father's footsteps, but also we are super fucking accomplished directors in our own regard. And if folks want to hear our thoughts on Gretel and Hansel, we do actually have a Patreon episode on that. We do indeed. That was one of our early ones, too. So go back and uh, listen to uh, The Rough Cut. Ooh, dear. Baby, <laughs> baby podcasters. Um, so yeah, the script for this was actually finished in 2012. Um, and of course, back then it was called February. In terms of inspiration, Perkins notes on the commentary that as a kid, he loved the Madeline books, like the little little girl children's books. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're about a little girl at a boarding school and her... Uh, but there was one book in particular where her appendix is taken out that I guess really 
resonated <laughs> with Perkins in this. But so the opening scene of the film when Kat is getting the uh, the flashback, or I'm sorry, the flash forward, the vision, the premonition mm-hmm. to her parents' death, she's actually modeled in costume to look like Madeline with the blue peacoat and the yellow hat. Oh, wow. Okay. But that particular book ends with a line that says, and that's all there is. And there's something about, like, the finiteness, the finiteness. The finality, yeah. The finality <laughs> of that. And just having nothing else that really struck a chord with Perkins. So the screenplay for the movie does end with a line that says, and there's nothing else. Of course, we don't see that in the film, but that's supposed to be the the feeling that the film leaves you with at the end. And I I mean, I think we'd all agree Mm. it probably accomplishes Mm. that. Ah, yes, yes. Now, a quick aside here, because uh, we talked about the title. The film is no longer called February. Perkins did say that with that title, he was going for the idea that a time can also be a location. In other words, you can revisit a time of year in the same way you can go back to a house that you used to live in. Uh, A certain month or a certain season can elicit a certain emotional response. And that's certainly true for anyone who has a negative anniversary on their calendar. The approach of that month brings the feeling of very much being back in another room. And it's a time that stands outside the rest of the year. So that's where the title of February came from. And I don't know, because he hasn't really commented on how much, like, if the death of his father was kind of an inspiration for Kat's narrative in this film. But I do want to point out that Perkins' birthday is in February. Hmm. Hmm. So, I don't know. He also intended to tell a sad story about loss and use the horror genre, specifically the possession subgenre, as a Trojan horse. He noted that he could have made the film without this angle, but felt its omission would have resulted in the audience engagement with the story being very different. And I, I should have credited this, but this is uh, these are quotes actually from an interview with Katie Reif with the AV Club. Former guest Katie Reif, by the way. Yeah, it was a little bit ironic doing research for this episode because every time I stumbled on a juicy think piece, it was like, oh, that's a former guest of ours. <laughs> Clearly, the people that we have had on this podcast, including our current guest, if this movie works for you, it really, really seems to work for you. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, right? He, he wanted to tell this story and he was like, oh, yeah, let me just do it through horror. Like it was it almost seemed incidental to him. It's like elevated or something. Well, oh, and that's the other thing, too. Excuse me. I, I'm afraid I have to leave this podcast right now. You break out the elevated horror word. I have places to be. I will not stand for this, gentlemen. God. Well, okay. Well, it's like the worst part about like the time period that we're about to enter for the next like duration of this theme on the podcast, right? Like, really, 2015 is where it starts to hit, and we get all of these fucking assholes being like, oh, well, it's not like a normal film. It's like a cool yeah. film. It's like an elevated film. And I'm just picturing like Amy Poehler with her tits out on Mean Girls saying, like yeah black coat's daughter super elevated girls <laughs> it's amazing how many filmmakers were trying so hard not to use the h word when talking about their movie it's really frustrating mm-hmm. well and, and he says the same thing so when he finished that script in 2012 he started showing it around hollywood and everyone everyone he showed it to was super interested in the concept and the basic story you know that story of loss they mm-hmm. were very complimentary they were like oh this is great this is very sophisticated but no one would finance this. So again, this is like 2012, 2013. And Perkins notes, he's like, around this time, horror movies were kind of slumping. Nowadays, and nowadays meaning 2017 when this interview took place, it's passe to say that because everybody has a handsome, successful, maybe even a 24 horror Mm. movie coming out. Mm -hmm. But at the time in 2012, 2013, the industry wasn't quite there yet. So he got a lot of feedback saying, oh, this is great, but we would never make this. 
it wasn't until Emma Roberts and Kiernan Shipka read the script and said, we want to do this, and this was would be around 2014, that it was actually perceived to be valuable beyond a nice script. Yeah, you always got to lock down that talent. The minute that you find someone that you can sell the movie based on, then you've got your green light. It's just interesting to me, too. I mean, again, talking about Emma Roberts and how she was in Scream 4, this is 2011, and that movie, as we discussed in our lengthy episode on Scream 4, didn't really resonate with audiences or critics that much because of this perceived slump in horror time that Perkins is talking about. Mm -hmm. And now we have Roberts again, just by thankful like luck of release schedule, I guess, in the next generation of like, yeah, these A24, some might say, quote unquote, elevated horror films. <laughs> she rode the wave. That's all. She knew where the <laughs> she knew where the horror trend was going. <laughs> Principal photography begins in February 2015 and lasts for 23 days in Kemptville, Ontario, Canada, at the University of Gulf, Guelph? Guelph. <laughs> at the University of Guelph, Kemptville Agricultural Campus. Um, this was a, a farming campus that was mm -hmm. in decline, so there were like a handful of students present and they were never in the way when they were filming. I do love that detail. It's like, yeah, we just found this abandoned university and then went there and shot it. How weird would it be to be an administrator working your day job and just see Oz Perkins and Emma Roberts shooting something on the side road? <laughs> well, I guess, too, for this kid, Shipka would have been known mostly for Mad Men. So yes. she was probably like, yeah, not a household name. Well, maybe she was. I don't know. She was. I mean, that's why they were able to sell the movie on her. Mm. So the film had its world premiere at TIFF in September 2015, followed by a second screening at Fantastic Fest here in Austin a couple weeks later. Pretty much immediately after its premiere at TIFF, they sold it to A24 and DirecTV. But that's when some trouble started. And if y'all have any enlightenment on this, I would love to hear it because I don't know why. Like, There's no concrete explanation as to why this film was pushed back for as long as it was. So Perkins says, um, first of all, <laughs> they wanted to change the title. And mm -hmm. he said, A24 wanted a title that indicated the genre a little more strongly. They offered some alternate titles and he didn't like any of them. So he went through the film and he had a lot of suggestions, but he landed on the Black Coat's Daughter. And it's a verse from this rhyme, which his brother Elvis Perkins and Elvis Perkins is um, actually did the score for the film as well. He wrote the music for this nursery rhyme that opens and closes the film, and they use it as an incantation at the beginning and end of the movie, uh, and it goes, Deedle, Deedle, Black Coat's Daughter, What Was in the Holy Water. He really liked the word daughter, which, given the film's plot, I think that makes sense, and they decided that the Black Coat's Daughter was a priest's daughter. In any case, it worked for a priest, it worked for the devil, it worked for a father, and it had the quality of a child raised by this strange black coat, and... Perkins notes, most importantly, it felt sexy enough. <laughs> I mean, not unimportant when you're trying to sell a movie. But okay, what are y'all's thoughts on this title as opposed to February? So I never got to see or I never heard about this movie when it was February. Mm -hmm. I definitely wasn't living in Austin at the time yet. So I missed it at Fantastic Fest. Uh, and when, by the time that I got around to watching it, it was already the Black Coast Daughter mm -hmm. and had been for a while. And the thing is, is that I don't think that the the studio instincts on this were wrong because I think February is almost too amorphous of a title, right? Like mm -hmm. it is it is hard to narrow down to a place. Like February, if you if you hear it right, right? Like if you can get if you're on the same wavelength, February is a dreary time. It's a time of, of hopelessness and snow turning to rain for people that lived in the north and you know, I lived in Alaska for a while. Like February has a very specific connotation to me. 
because right. it's sort of like the the doldrums the yeah. worst days before spring finally comes up on the horizon so mm-hmm. i like it in that context but you you kind of need to have seen the film in order i think to feel that february aspect to it mm. i think the the black coat's daughter black coat is such an, a suggestive word you know it could be a priest it could be the figure the 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 satan figure that appears throughout this film it's ill-defined black coat itself is not a descriptive word it's a it's something that says a shape i i, I think and I, I know there are people that would yell at me about this <laughs> i think i like the black coast daughter as a title way more than february because it reaches a little bit it's aiming for something it's willing to say something that might ostracize some of its audience Nobody's going to think of February and be turned off or turned on. It's sort of a non-entity of a name. Mm. But people are going to see the movie or not see the movie because it's called The Black Coat's Daughter. And I I like that. Mm. I like that self-selection element to it. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, and Joe, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I agree mostly with Matt. I think the issue for me is that February, I implicitly understand exactly what Perkins is trying to get at because I do think February is such a mood and it's such a vibe. Mm-hmm. And especially knowing the history of both titles and coming to this film so, so late, to me, February is actually the more apt of the two titles, but I completely understand why they had to change it, uh, not just for like SEO and marketing purposes, but like, yeah, when you hear February, it doesn't make you think of horror. And ironically, there was a really sort of limited, small-scale foreign film called November that was released a couple of years ago. And that film, like, nobody knew what to make of it because November, like February, has certain connotations, <laughs> but it didn't cue audiences as to whether it was genre, what the plot was, what they might expect. And I I think that film suffered because of it. So in a way, Black Coat's Daughter was the better strategy. It's so funny because every time you've mentioned November a few times on this podcast and every time you say it, there's a Courtney Cox movie from the late 2000s called November where she like oh. witnesses a uh, robbery and a murder in a gas station. And like okay. it's it's about the PTSD that like affects her afterwards. Right. So two movies have tried November and failed. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um. Well, OK, so they, they at least announced the change in early 2016, and it is scheduled to be released by DirecTV Cinema on July 14th, 2016. Inexplicably, that release date is pushed back to August 25th, 2016, and then pushed back again to September 30th, 2016. So we're just going through the months here. Mm-hmm. The film was then pulled from the schedule completely and pushed back to an undisclosed 2017 date. And finally... Finally, it was released on February 16th, 2017 through DirecTV Cinema before being released on March 31st, 2017 in a very limited theatrical release, um, which I think was like 26 theaters and then through video on demand by A24. Right. So it actually did get a wide release a full year after I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House was uh, released on Netflix. So technically, like people could view that as his debut film, but it is the Black Coat's daughter. Like that is Os Perkins' debut film. Also, mm-hmm. let's be honest: indie horror film dumped on Netflix versus twenty six screens. It's a coin flip as to who, yeah. which audience saw that movie more often the opening weekend. <laughs> <laughs> which film was seen by fewer people? And ironically enough, I was one of the people who got to see "I Am the Pretty Thing." on the big screen because I got to see it at TIFF in 2016. So that was my introduction to Oz Perkins. See, if you had just gone to TIFF a year earlier, you would have been seeing The Black Coat's Daughter. This is true. This is true. And you like I Am the Pretty Thing, right? 
I do, I can completely understand why people hate it or think that it's boring and slow. But for me, as an introduction to his work, it really classified him as a director that has a really keen visual eye. Because mm-hmm. I think that that film is so fucking gorgeous. Like, it's very, very slow. But I find it just captivating to look at the construction of it as like a piece of art. Mm-hmm. It is a movie that, you know, if you say, oh, I like slow horror, mm-hmm. I am the pretty thing that lives in the house is a movie you could show to someone and find out if they, yeah. if they really, really do <laughs> like slow horror. But I will say this, as a triptych of, of horror films, I think Black Coat's Daughter, I'm the pretty thing that lives in the house and Gretel and Hansel are such a fascinating exploration of places mm-hmm. and the power of places that it's it's so interesting to go back and watch all of them because they're they're all sort of indie films but indie horror films with elements of prestige and also you know more base elements in them mm-hmm. but they're wildly different in a lot yeah. of ways they're very different in terms of structure and storytelling style but they're all about the places that draw us hauntings and being stuck in a place and being called to a place some directors, some filmmakers, they kind of make what they make and you look for the, you know, you're like, oh, I'm going to see if I can tease out common threads. It's like mm-hmm. for Oz Perkins, they're just there. Yep. Yeah. Places and hauntings. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And they all look fucking gorgeous. Amazing. You can pinpoint his style from a mile away. And I do like I Am The Pretty Thing. I think, though, what Monagal was saying about how though this Blackwood's daughter like really sticks to the landing. I think the landing is what's missing for me in I Am The Pretty Thing. Yeah, and one could argue that the same kind of problem persists in Gretel and Hansel, right? Where I Mm -hmm. I think in our Patreon episode, Trace, you and I talked about how sometimes it feels like it's all visual. And at a certain point, Perkins almost forgets that he should or maybe wants to consider a narrative. And I think he's a fascinating director in that capacity because he's on record as saying, I don't really care that much about plot. And (laughs) I feel like you can see that on display very clearly in Gretel and Hansel, but I think in February slash Black Coat's Daughter, it's that perfect balance, right? I would wholeheartedly agree with that. So it it only makes about $20,000 in those 26 theaters. (laughs) And it does get an international release in Bolivia, where it makes about $18,000. So we're looking at a worldwide gross of $38,000 for this movie. (laughs) Good job, Bolivia. (laughs) Uh, On Rotten Tomatoes, we've got a 74% with an average score of 6.6 out of 10. And, in a rarity, a letterbox score of 6.6 out of 10 as well. That seems low to me, considering how frequently I hear it. And maybe it's the horror echo chamber, but I expected higher. See, I think I really think this is going to fall in the underseeing category because I think that a lot of people in our circles, like you, me and Matt, have seen the film. But I don't Mm -hmm. think it's one that's widely known by people outside of people who are like really in the horror circles. Yeah. It's not ever present enough for people to kind of take a chance on it, too. Like, it's just that little bit of, like, it's on Amazon, not on Netflix, right? It's like mm. those little tiny streaming barriers that means you have to actually give a little bit of an effort to look for it. And in kind of the modern streaming economy, like, if you have to if you have to pay two ninety nine to watch it, if you have to go right. stream it on Amazon, log into your Amazon credentials as mm-hmm. opposed to your Netflix account, like, those are things I think they're, that are going to maybe put you on the defensive a little bit when you're watching it. And I'm, yeah. I'm not talking about, you know, like you said, horror critics and horror audiences i think if i go and tell my friends that are that are kind of casual horror fans i'm like oh you gotta watch this this is a movie that could probably hit one of two ways so 6.6 breaks my heart but also feels kind of right i mean Mm -hmm. it's it's like it's almost a three and a half out of five as an average you know right 
I think sometimes too, and this is maybe a conversation we can continue to have over the weeks to come, but I would be curious to know how you two feel about it. It feels like sometimes we get caught up as horror critics in the legacy of festival films, right? Mm. Like, so we hear about this mysterious film that debuted to rapturous reviews at these two film festivals, and then it gets shelved. And we think, well, now I want to see it. And where is it? And how come it hasn't been announced yet? So I think it almost develops a kind of notoriety and it mm-hmm. creates anticipation. But if you're not following festivals, then you probably didn't even know this film was about to come out. Well, and that's always a tricky thing too. Like, I mean, I, you know, I have my own thoughts about like when critics do end of year lists and they include festival films on them that haven't come out yet. And I'm like, well, that isn't, isn't really fair for your readers in my opinion. But like mm-hmm. when this came out, like when it was in the festival run, like Brad Miska at Bloody, he gave it a five out of five. It was like, this is like, a new direction for horror but again the world had to wait two years to see this right. film and it's interesting because i think tracking this film from its from its origins in 2015 from production it's early a24 right like this movie mm-hmm. was made before the witch but was released between the witch and hereditary so right. i think it's interesting to see how they're dealing with this in like the early goings of their horror domination i guess i might say yeah. Yeah. And if we talk about A24 at some point. Right. I hate to be a contrarian. Oh, no, I kind of love it. Okay. The A24 horror films that I like the most are the ones that they dump. I love St. Maud. I mm-hmm. love mm-hmm. The Hole in the Ground. And I love The Black Oats Daughter. Those are my three favorite A24 films. And those are the ones that, you know, St. Maud a little bit more. There was extenuating circumstances yeah, because right. of a global pandemic. But certainly The Hole in the Ground is another movie that they sort of dump that I think is just pretty much perfection from start to finish. So, you know, they get this reputation as being this really adventurous, you know, distributor and they really take chances and stuff. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know. I kind of feel like it's just sort of generic. I mean, not in a bad way. Their movies are still really good. But at the end of the day, it is sort of the auteurist thing where like recognizable names, big pushes, mm-hmm. stuff that isn't as recognizable at the time. They're they're kind of OK giving it a, a more direct to video or even direct TV distribution. Mm. So, you know, I think I think the fact that this is an A24 movie doesn't really mean anything. It's just it's just another movie that a studio didn't quite have confidence in. Well, at least at this time period, because again, I mean, even looking at A24 filmography pre The Witch, like we've got Spring Breakers, The Bling mm. Ring, Under the Skin, Tusk is an A24 film. <laughs> okay, see, I love all of those movies. <laughs> Barring Tusk, I haven't seen it, but right. all of like Spring Breakers was, I think, my number two film of that year. And Under the Skin is just like, oh my yeah. God, I could go on about that one. And I think Under the Skin is more representative of the types of horror films they would start putting out after 2015, 2016. But mm-hmm. like, this is a wide, this is an eclectic set of genres of films that they're working with here. Right. Yeah. If anything, Matt, I would almost argue that they become. Conservative is not quite the right word, but they they have leaned into their branding into such a way now that they do feel less adventurous. Like as time mm-hmm. progresses, I think they've come to realize like, oh, this is what an A24 film looks like. And this is the one that we can market. And mm-hmm. they have been more careful about which titles they pick up. Right. Yeah. And it's always fascinating to see. I mean, what is a what is a Blumhouse film? What is an A24 film? What does mm-hmm. that mean before we know? Like, if you say that this is an A24 film and you don't tell them anything else, people are going to have some preconceived notions about what type of film it is. So, yes. yeah, it's interesting to see how our relationship to those movies and the studio's relationship to itself evolves over time. And all I know is the best movie they've ever made is called The Black Coat's Daughter. And they, <laughs> they took them two years to bring it to the screen. So. There we go. 
I firmly believe that whatever this DirecTV deal was, I firmly believe that that is what was holding this up. But unfortunately, there is no concrete information. So mm-hmm. it would be it would be interesting to see. I hope somebody someday somebody writes an oral history of that right. middle period before streaming really caught on when there were places like DirecTV mm-hmm. and what was the, the not pre Paramount, whatever the name of that was that was doing like direct to opening weekend release kind of stuff. I feel like there was a few years there before the streaming places like Netflix and stuff really caught on. Yeah. But it was it was just all it was it was just all over like nobody knew what was a theatrical release versus a you know a HD net. That's what I was thinking of. HD net mm-hmm. release. Oh, like it was just it was such a <laughs> weird period and I hope someday somebody does the work of unpacking that. Yeah. Right now because we have films like right now as we're recording this, I'm covering Sundance, but we have titles that are playing there that are going direct to streaming on places like Hulu and Amazon in just a couple of months. But like those deals are in place. And when you announce it, people don't automatically go, oh, well, those films must be shit. Whereas in this time period, the 2015 to 2017 period, it's like, oh, it's going to debut on DirecTV. Ooh, I mm-hmm. guess it's probably not very good. I mean, look at, say, Mod and um, what is it, Epix? Mm, oh, God, Epix. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Talk about absolutely fumbling a release. My God, yeah. that movie deserves so much more. Go see St. Mod, then listen to our Patreon episode on it. Oh, my God. Yeah. But yeah, okay, well, that's all I've got. So why don't we go into the plot of this film? Okay. So we open on Catherine, who is played by Kieran and Shipka. And, well, I mean, technically we have this nursery rhyme as this is all happening. But uh, she's in bed. She's counting the days until her parents arrive. It's like a couple of days the next day. She's also having nightmares about a ruined vehicle. And it's shot in such a way that you don't know if it's a dream or if it's a flashback or if it's a flash forward and it's a very uncomfortable way to open a movie because as an audience you're immediately put off like you you don't know where you're at and it's hard to get a read on things so i love that instability right from the jump this is a film that establishes its atmosphere right at the gate though right and i feel like that heavily contributes to it but as a first time viewer joe were you a little bit kind of like i mean were you a little bit confused like what is going on in this film so i'll confess i knew i knew that there was time like a non-linear element to it but i couldn't Mm. remember i just remember someone said like oh the emma roberts stuff is happening in a different time so i knew that going in but Mm -hmm. i didn't know about the satanism i didn't know about the beheadings (laughs) i didn't know about that final shot so this was very much like oh i wonder if the kiernan shipka stuff is going to be talking about or playing with time a little bit because i know that's an element in this movie and trace you and i both prepped for this it sounds like by by going and watching the commentary track which i've Mm -hmm. never done before Perkins is pretty upfront about the fact that he's juggling like highbrow and lowbrow. He does a lot of like horror stuff that you need to have in horror movies to keep Mm -hmm. the audience both engaged with you, but also a little bit on their heels. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I think that's part of the, the fun of this is that yes, there's like the time elements and we'll talk about that later. But (laughs) the thing that I, and everybody who's listening to this hopefully has seen the film, but I think the thing that's sort of important is people talk about, Oh, this twist and that, I never really got the impression the Black Coat's daughter was trying to... It's not a movie that's trying to pull one over on you. Yeah. The changing characters is it's doing something because it finds it deliciously fun to do it. 
and it's not necessarily going to be proud of itself for the twist. It's just sort of like, mm. if you saw it coming, you did. If you didn't, whatever, that's fine. But like, isn't it fun that this character is this character? Well, because they they show they they put they show their hand pretty early, at least in, when they reveal that Bill and Linda are Rose's parents. But mm-hmm. I will say, I don't. I don't know because y'all can agree or disagree, but like I don't know if I would like it better if the Rose and the Cat, I'm sorry, the Rose and the Jones segments were split up instead of interwoven together because I feel like having them intertwined defeats the purpose of having those character title cards. Hmm. Yeah, they did feel a slight bit arbitrary, although obviously the cat one at the end kind of tells you, hey, the climax is coming Mm -hmm. and it's all about her. So I appreciated that the first two definitely felt a little bit more, okay, what am I getting out of this? And of course, I talked about my lack of enthusiasm for things like title cards. Once again, (laughs) plugging the Dr. Sleep audio commentary where Lindsay, Travs, and I just have at it, but... Stop trying to make the Dr. Sleep commentary happen. It's not going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) It's already there. It's there for your listening pleasure. You'll be excited to know, Joe, that in that commentary, as soon as the first title card comes up, he's like, yeah, you're either a person that really likes these or Mm. you don't, and guess which one I am. (laughs) There we go. I mean, to each their own. I feel like he gets good mileage out of it. There's only three right so it's not Mm -hmm. like an overwhelming number where you're like counting up or counting down or something like that yeah i i think for me what i really liked about this is that mood setting and i think trace you said it off the top that this is a film that rewards repeat viewing so i i felt immediately clued in to say okay well what's the deal with that car i'm keeping an eye out for things like there's going to be little easter eggs woven into this so even though i agree with you matt it doesn't end up feeling quite like a twist it does feel like a hey did you pay attention if not mm-hmm. you'll get some more stuff out of this if you do a rewatch I know I'm jumping ahead, but like, Joe, did, did, when did you, and maybe this is like a useless conversation, but when did you realize that Joan and Kat were the same person? Oh, I think it was like when it was revealed. I knew that Joan was not who she was saying, and mm. then I felt like a big old dum-dum because <laughs> it's telegraphed the minute you're introduced to her, she's got the mental institution mm-hmm. asylum bracelet that she rips off in that very first scene, so. And the the, the gun wound in her shoulder? Mm-hmm. yeah that that one didn't clue in because i didn't know that somebody gets shot in the film until <laughs> it actually happens to kieran shipka and then yeah. when that happened i was like uh-huh oh yeah okay now i get it i did have an issue on my first viewing with that i actually thought it was a cheat because i was like that's not fair you can't cast a different actress as this same character nine years mm-hmm. later but again it's one right. of those things where it's like you just gotta you just gotta go with it and if, if that's too big of a hurdle you're not going to get the same kind of enjoyment out of this movie that we are yeah. And really, the the way that it's structured and the way that the characters are revealed, and even that last title card, Joe, that you mentioned, it's it's not about narrative. It's about shifting loyalties. It's mm. about making you making you feel that you understand this character and you definitely know that they are a bad person or a good person because of the actions they've taken. And then backing it up or jumping it forward, playing a little bit with the chronology. Yeah. And then suddenly you're like, oh, fuck, I feel really bad for you. Mm-hmm. And that's that to me more than anything is people that get... And I know that's that's neither of you, but I have talked to people that get hung up on like the timelines and, and mm-hmm. the physicality of these two characters oh, or one no. character that's played by two actresses. No. It's always been for me about making me dislike a character and then making me 
feel just overwhelmingly sad about a character. It's manipulative, yeah. and it's great. Yeah, I, I saw a couple of people say, oh, well, it's only nine years apart, and these are two completely different-looking actresses, and I was just like, oh, man, no, you got to let that shit go. Yeah, yeah. Like, if that's the kind of thing you're going to get hung up on, this is absolutely not a film for you. But all I could think of reading that, having watched the film, was just like, you are missing the point. Like, that is not what this movie is about who gives a fuck about that and that's why i would say if you have seen this movie and you were hung up on those on a first on a first watch please give it a rewatch because watching it without like having to go in with okay i'm doing the mental brainwork i'm trying to solve the mystery what's going Mm -hmm. on if you can just watch it for what it is honestly joan's story is is Oh, it's heartbreaking. Well, it works so much better when you start the movie knowing what is going on with this Mm -hmm. character. And it just it recontextualizes every single one of her scenes, especially Mm. (laughs) especially that moment when she goes to the bathroom after finding out that it's Rose's parents. And she like suppresses that laughter for like a Mm -hmm. half second. Mm. Yeah, actually. So, Matt, this will be interesting for you because I don't know if you'll have heard the episode. But two weeks ago, we covered the Lords of Salem. And I spent a lot of time forcing Trace and our guest Adrian Torres to debate whether or not that was an unhappy film because of what happens to Heidi, the Sherry Moon zombie character. Because mm-hmm. again, we're talking about Satanism, we're talking about characters just having absolute shit happen to them. And I really felt that similar kind of thing here where I was like, is she a villain? Is this sad? Is this happy? Like, I was so enthusiastic by once again watching a film about a woman who makes a pact with Satan. And it's like, Satan, I love you. Don't go. I want to be with you. (laughs) I was like, oh, horror. Love you so much. The final shot of this movie is just, I mean, the fact that that the final shot of Emma Roberts crying is like, was the main promo image used in every single review for this Mm -hmm. film. Like, ah. I am going to I'm going to praise the ending probably every 10 minutes for the rest of this because like I'm just going to do it so fucking good. Yeah, it is. I don't know if you guys watch movies the way that I do, but if I'm really enjoying something about 70 percent of the way through a movie, I start to get worried about whether it's going to it's going to bring it all home correctly. Mm -hmm. There's that moment where I'm like, oh, this is so good. And I think of like, I'm sorry to say this, but I think of The Power, which is a movie that came out last year where I was in love with that movie and it fucked up the ending so bad. And I was so mad about that because it's. 80 minutes of that movie is just flawless, perfect horror. The feeling of watching a movie that you're so invested in that you're worried about if they're going to end it mm-hmm. and then watch them land it perfectly, like that more than anything, I was physically giddy watching this movie because I was like, there's too much going on. They're not going to stick it. Right. And they they managed to to hit it with a poignancy that I actually wasn't expecting. When a movie can do that to you, get you worried about an ending and still surprise you, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, there's just nothing better than that feeling. <sighs> It's so satisfying. Yeah. And and I'm sorry, I'll I'll walk back the kind of disdain that I gave to anybody who says like, oh, you can't overcome the nine year age gap and the different looking actresses. I don't mean it to sound like super cunty. It's just that ending is so powerful that I couldn't imagine getting hung up on, oh, well, the twist doesn't work for me because mm-hmm. I'm so invested in that moment. Like that final shot is so haunting and gorgeous and just impactful i can't see getting anything else out of that except just like 
the sheer emotionality of it. So that was me. Uh, that, I, I still liked the film, but I was very much like, a, I mean, again, like, I had been writing for Bloody for less than a year. I was like, I, I was still kind of like practicing my brain, writing reviews and stuff. But that mm -hmm. was, I was very hung up on that. And that's why, mm -hmm. again, if you have seen this once and you were hung up on that, I would implore you to watch it again because I can promise you it will play better. Right. So, I mean, admittedly, most films play better. Yeah, on the that's watch, true. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So we've got Catherine, something's going on with these dreams. We know her parents are coming in a day or two. So the next scene, we learn that she's preparing for a recital that's going to happen. And we learn this via Father Brian, who is played by Greg Elwand. And she's very upset because he actually has to go on a trip to Albany right before the winter break, which is also on the horizon. And the relationship is perplexing. <laughs> like... Like, it's father-daughtery to you? So much. And especially because you don't understand the dynamics here. I was like, what is going on here? Like, what kind of school is this? Is she being boarded here? Uh, what is her relationship to other adults? Because this is the first person we see her interact with. And she is so familiar with him. And she seems so upset that he won't be there. I was like, girl, how mm -hmm. well do you know this old man? And again, I don't know if this is Perkins directing her to do this, but she keeps looking off into the corner. And this is one of the few scenes like where the demon is, I, I believe the demon is present, but we are not actually seeing the demon yet. Mm. But I firmly believe that yeah, she is looking off into that corner. When, he, when, when Father Brian says, I'm not going to make it, she looks off and then she smiles because it's okay that one father won't be there for her. She's got this other one. Mm. This is a movie that... And on repeated watching, it only gets worse, I think, or better, depending on how you want to look at it. <laughs> the, the motives of characters and their relationships with each other are super vague. Mm -hmm. You can look at, and sorry, I'm skipping ahead in the plot, but you oh, can look at James Remar's relationship with Emma Roberts when they're in the hotel room together. Right. You can look at Lucy Boynton's character, Rose and Cat, when they're in the room together. Mm -hmm. And there's this like, is it familial? Is it mm -hmm. sexual? Mm -hmm. Is it sad? Like, yeah. what is the dynamic that these characters have with each other? And that's another one of the things I like about the movie is you're never really sure where each character sits in relationship to each other. And there's yes. like this vague sense, you know, because this is a movie that operates on an unease. There's a vague sense of unease that flows out of each of these interactions. And it really just adds to the entire, you know, sadness around Cat is that like, this is what you have. These are the relationships <laughs> you have with people. Well, no wonder why you're like turn into the devil because these people suck. Well, and yeah. the setting itself is so desolate, right? Like there's just no one here mm -hmm. ever in this movie yeah i won't lie when i saw that it was a girls boarding school and it was a horror film i was like oh i have seen this story a million times <laughs> it's going to be so paint by numbers i immediately thought of seance that we kind of I I was gonna say it's seance that fucking stupid terrible movie <laughs> yeah and and the frustrating part of that was that it was operating under the same kinds of things right because these films often get a lot of visual and atmospheric mileage out of oh there's only a few people oh there's a break oh there's a killer or something mysterious happening and this film does all that but it doesn't do it in that cheap schlocky way like mm -hmm. i love the fact that there's basically less than a handful of characters in this film mm. and yet it still feels like i'm constantly uncertain about what's going to happen or how they're relating to one another whereas mm. normally i'm just like oh, okay got it empty school mysterious shit <laughs> okay so this is when we get the title card february i, I mean the black coat's daughter right <laughs> <laughs> 
And then we're introduced to our second of three leads, and we meet Rose, who is played by Lucy Boynton, and she is coming in to take a picture. And I, I'm always fascinated when we see characters getting their picture taken because it, there's like a level of artificiality involved in it because people always try to look their best in terms of aesthetics, but also like, oh, is she going to be able to give us a smile? Is she going to be uncomfortable? And Rose is very much play for the cameras. So I pegged her as a kind of society A-lister kind of girl one thing that this movie does that i love is so we yeah we get this shot of her you know smiling and it, it looks artificial mm-hmm. and it pays off later yeah visit the same scene mm-hmm. and it goes on just a little bit longer and we see yep. that smile drop it is so haunting and so perfect mm-hmm. i have to say one of my one of my most prized possessions is uh, a friend of mine brock wilbur who writes mm-hmm. for a bunch of different sites you've probably seen his writing before uh, he occasionally will purge his record collection, and he had a copy of the Black Coat's Daughter on vinyl, which is actually Ooh. like a lot of Mondo records. It's kind of early generation Mondo records hard to find. So he was right. kind enough to um, send his copy to me. I was able to open it for the first time because it was unopened and really play around with like some of the inserts and the fun stuff they had. And one of the inserts on that record, which I love to pieces, <sighs> is the high school headshot. It oh. is like the vanity. Like you remember those you got in, in the 90s, like mm-hmm. where it would be like the full, like eight, not bigger than the eight and a half by 11s, but like the full ass headshot that you got. Mm-hmm. It's that of her with the photo that she takes in the movie. And part of me desperately wants to get it framed and just like put it on a wall somewhere in my house and people will be like is that a, is that like a cousin of yours and they'll be like sure yeah as far as you know you're like it's a litmus test if you can tell me who this girl is then you can be a friend of mine and if you don't know who she is then you need to get the fuck out i will just answer and be like this is uh, someone very near and dear to me mm-hmm mm-hmm <laughs> so all is not right with rose because her next scene uh is a visit to the nurse's office so we meet sisters Miss Prescott, who is played by Elena Krautz, and Miss Drake, who is played by Heather Todd Mitchell. And we don't exactly know what's wrong with Rose, and we don't even know if she's faking or not, because, of course, the next scene after that is her friend Lizzie, played by Emma Holzer, encouraging her to come clean about a pregnancy that she is... I was about to say experiencing. She is pregnant, and (laughs) uh, she has not told her boyfriend Rick, who is played by Peter Gray. Yeah, I, she's very much doing the, I can't go out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm sick. sick. <laughs> Whereas that really, there's that really good line that Perkins has in the commentary track where he says that he was drawn to Lucy Boynton because even though she's British, she mm-hmm. lies like an American teenager. Yes. But she has sort of that, she's like, he talked a couple of times about the fact that she basically lies and sort of like challenges you to call her out on it. And everybody's sort of like, okay, you're sick. Mm-hmm. And it just adds that it it's adds that little flavor of authenticity to the performance. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, she reminded me of every girl that either wanted to get out of gym class or last period so that they could either take off and go smoke or go to the mall or hang out with their boyfriend in high school. Like I know this girl and I knew exactly who she was in just a couple of scenes in this movie. But y'all don't find her to be unlikable, do you? Oh, oh no. no, not yeah. Not at all. She's not she's not unlikable. Partially because she's vulnerable to us as the audience pretty early mm-hmm. on. We rec- mm-hmm. we recognize almost immediately what's going on with her. So like we recognize the circumstances that kind of allow her to be who she is. It's not that she's unlikable. It's that we also recognize the missed opportunities for mm-hmm. her to have said something that could have made a difference. Yeah. So. 
yeah, like I definitely judge her when she ducks out of her responsibility for looking after Kat so that she can go and be with her boyfriend. But you also, if you put yourself in her headspace, she's pregnant. She needs to talk to this guy. She needs to figure out what is going on with her own life. She doesn't care about this fucking freshman kid. She's got more important things to go to worry about. Exactly. (laughs) She's a child. She's 17 years old, 16 years old. Yeah. Hey, can you prevent one of your classmates from being possessed by Satan is a tall order Mm -hmm. for you when you are still not old enough to legally buy a pack of cigarettes or get a drink. Right. It also reminds me of this kind of amusing anecdote that I remember my husband and I were out one time and we just had really terrible service at either a restaurant or at the grocery store or something. And I was like, man, that woman was such a fucking bitch. Like... (laughs) And he was just like, you know what? You need to be more empathetic with strangers because you have no idea what is going on in their life. For all you know, her mother is dying or she has a sick pet or something like this. And when I was watching this movie, I thought from Rose's perspective, she is the central character and her drama is that she is pregnant and she's got to tell this boyfriend and figure out what to do with her life. She doesn't know that there's a girl being possessed by Satan in the next room over. (laughs) If I had any video editing skills whatsoever, I would cut this down to one of those, like, kindness, pass it on advertisements. (laughs) Be kind. You don't know who's getting possessed by Satan. (laughs) Right in the next room. Right in front of my salad. (laughs) Oh, that is a good cut. And only a few people will get it, Trace. Okay, so uh, then we cut to an assembly so that we can firmly establish there's more people than just a couple of girls. We've got Mr. Gordon, who is the headmaster, played by Peter James Howarth, and he is this classic school administrator. You know, girls, you need to be on your best conduct when the parents are here, and Mm -hmm. you're just like, yep, okay, we know who you are from this brief moment as well. Okay, so and this is where things start to get a little unusual. As we see the girls kind of like walking down the street, as we see cars arriving, we see Catherine just standing by herself crying as she sees parents coming in. And you're like, okay, she's really upset about her parents. But also, what does she know that we don't? Well, but the thing is, though, she it, it is vague. Right, because the demon shows her in the opening scenes of this film, like your parents are going to die in a wreck, and mm-hmm. so I don't know. I view her in these early in these early scenes as being like she doesn't know for sure, mm-hmm. and it's not until she, she gets the confirmation that her parents, well, not really, because she not starts really. like she starts worshiping beforehand. But I'm fascinated that we have so many holes in in this in this possession narrative for Cap mm-hmm. because I don't know when. She starts, like, Mm -hmm. succumbing to to the demon's will, you know? I think she spends a lot of time in the early movie, or at least we're we're meant to understand her as disassociating a little bit because she's crying and she doesn't seem to know that she's crying yeah like people are people are you talked earlier about the opening scene where they ask about like what is that funny are you smiling at something yeah like all of these little things add up to somebody who is not totally in control Mm -hmm. of what's going on like to themselves not control of of their own self physically or mentally Mm -hmm. i like the vagueness of that and i like that it's ill-defined because not knowing what she knows and when she knows it makes everything just feel so much ickier yes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean i'm interested to know if there are people who watch this movie and find it too cold and too sterile because it's not just that there's so few characters or that we don't know what's going on but like 
it's really cold in Toronto right now. We're going through a bit of a, a cold snap, but I was freezing watching this movie because mm. everything about it just gives off that chill, that dread, that ominous notes. Like we are witnessing something absolutely fucking terrible about to happen and you don't know what it is. And I think that, I don't know that this movie is scary, but yeah. It is so dread-inducing the whole way through that I'm like, oh, I'm watching a young girl cry at cars going by. I don't know what it means, and I'm really nervous for her. But that goes all the way back to Perkins' statement about horror being the Trojan horse. Like, I, I don't think this movie is trying to scare. Because at the end of the day, we are just telling a simple story about a girl who's lost her parents and is seeking mm -hmm. comfort in other avenues. But like what you said earlier, Joe, how... You watch this yesterday and you can't get the damn thing out of your head. Like that is yeah. the staying power of this movie. You will be thinking about this movie long after the credits roll. Yes, absolutely. To quote the children of Twitter, this film has been living rent free in my head all day long. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually like that. I may cut that out. We'll see. No, it's fine. Keep it in. It's fun. Keep it forever. I'll say something smart so you can't cut it. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. You sound dumb. Oh, this movie looks pretty. Ah, oh, damn it. God damn, damn it. Ah. I really like the, the, the look of the movie, the, co the color palette, and the <laughs> cinematography is really good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like how there was sometimes snow and then sometimes not so much snow. <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at, at Matt Monagle. <laughs> Stop plugging. The plugs come at the end of oh, the show. Oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, I did two dumb things. <laughs> All the joking aside, uh, I do absolutely have to give massive, massive praise to cinematographer Julie Kirkwood because... Mm -hmm. This movie, as I said, it's giving off chills. That's how cold it is. And I fully credit her for giving it that visual aesthetic. Oh, and actually, Joe, you'll love to know this. So not only did she also shoot I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, um, mm -hmm. she also shot the Nicole Kidman, Karin Kusama movie Destroyer. Which I love, by the way. She also shot the uh, A24 movie The Monster, which I love a lot. Mm -hmm. But she also shot the pilot for Yellow Jackets. Yeah. So clearly I need to be keeping track of this woman's career because I am loving the look of the things she puts out. A hundred percent. Okay, so then we have the scene where Rose goes in and she watches Catherine play the piano and sing. I really had no idea what was happening at this moment. I was like, how am I feeling? It's so uncertain in these early scenes. Just like, who is Catherine to Rose? What's going on? Is the song sad? Is it weird? Like, there's a moment where Kat just pauses, and it's so uncomfortable. Because she pauses to look at the two seats that I'm assuming were reserved for yes. her parents. And mm -hmm. so, at this point, though, so she... She doesn't know for sure if they're dead. So mm -hmm. again, I, I'm filling in the blanks here. The demon says, hey, this is what's going to happen. Or maybe it's a dream and she doesn't really know it's a demon yet. Right. And she keeps getting all these clues that are like, oh, shit, it's right. Mm -hmm. And so when this is like one of the final straws is like when she doesn't see them at her concert. Yes. Or recital. Yeah. So almost immediately after this, we're back into Mr. Gordon's office and... Both Catherine and Rose are there, and it's because, okay, the winter break has begun. All of the parents have collected their children, except for these two. So it's like, well, shit, uh, <laughs> I didn't want to have to stay here. So he just delegates to the two nurses, like, well, you're going to be here anyway. So can you just kind of look after these two? And also, Rose, you're older, so you need to look after Kat. Women things. Do, go do women things. Like, take care of other women. I mean, I don't think this movie is particularly kind to men. 
in in all the right ways it's like this is very much a female dominated film the mm-hmm. men are either icky or absent yeah and that's why not to to spoil something that isn't in the movie but that's why i was so disappointed when uh, osgood perkins ended up not doing a head full of ghosts the adaptation of paul tremblay's novel because he was attached uh, to that for a while and i've read that book and it's such a sister that would have been a good fit it would have been a great fit and then he's he's not doing it anymore so when i watch it now i feel that because i feel like that's a story he could have crushed mm-hmm. because it's such a again it's such a women-centric story yeah yeah that's interesting, though, because I feel like there's a lot of plot in that book, and I don't know how Perkins would have handled some of it. <laughs> I mean, that's probably why he's not attached anymore. Maybe. I'm also just surprised we haven't gotten a Tremblay adaptation yet, because his books seem right for adaptation. I don't know about any of that. Like, <sighs> Hollywood makes really dumb decisions sometimes. Yeah. Anyway... According to Netflix, adaptations are so hot right now. So I've seen a lot of horror writers kind of a buzz like, oh, maybe my book will get optioned. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying, Clown in a Cornfield better be coming to my fucking movie screens sometime in the next couple of years. Oh, yeah. Shout out to Adam. Oh, my God. I know. I saw him promoting the sequel. And I'm like, oh, I'll go pre-order it. It comes Mm -hmm. out in August. (laughs) Yeah. Well, pre-orders are really important. So, folks, if you can do that. Also, you know. We're still living in that age where they're very worried about, um, like, shortages and stuff. So it's Mm. helpful for them to know how many people are going to buy. This has been your book PSA. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on, moving on. Okay. Um, So this is where Catherine calls her father and she leaves a message. But we don't hear anything that goes on in this phone call. And then... This is where I was like, Rose, are you going to be that girl? You're going to talk about how the sisters, the, the two nuns are Satanists and they don't actually have hair. And you can tell that Kat doesn't buy, but also she's so young that maybe she kind of does. And then, of course, it gets <laughs> revealed. She's not even fucking listening later. But The description she's giving sounds like the description of the witches in Roald Dahl's The Witches. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> uh this is when rose leaves uh to hook up well i wrote to hook up with her boyfriend of course we learned it's actually to tell him about the details of her abortion that she's going to do and then we get ominous music as Catherine touches objects on rose's desk and the phone rings again the second she picked up that hairbrush i was like watch your hair yeah because at this point you don't know what exactly we're talking about but the hint of satanism makes you think oh okay so this is going to be about these girls having to bond together against some external force (laughs) well sort of (laughs) i'm going to ask you guys because i know that this is sort of in your wheelhouse is being able to provide sort of queer readings of movies Mm -hmm. how overt or not overt is the infatuation between kate or from kate towards rose because every Mm -hmm. time i I rewatch this movie it's there, it's not there. It's again yeah. the kind of like slippery and ill defined, but there there are moments where it's sort of like what's Cat feeling towards Rose? Like mm-hmm. is this is there a little bit of like puppy dog love going on here too? And and that's part of the frustration of being left outside. How do you read that? The nuances in her in, in Shipka's performance really come into play here because when she kills the two nurses late in the film, it's very much like, Oh no, this is just everyday business I'm getting through. Mm-hmm. But I don't 
No, honestly. I mean, what you said about how it's there, it's not there, it's there, it's not there. Like, I could, I didn't pick up on it, honestly, on this viewing, but I could see me watching it again tomorrow and absolutely seeing something there. Oh, really? That's so fascinating because the minute that she comes out of the shower later and she says, you smell good, when Rose is like, you just need Mm -hmm. to go to bed. And then it actually creeps Rose out. And I thought, oh, this is interesting, right? Because in a simple reading, a queer reading it could just be oh this young girl has a crush on me and i'm not comfortable with it because i'm dealing with my fucking pregnancy stuff so she barricades the door but in a satanist reading you're like oh that girl's really creepy and i don't trust that she's not going to try to break in here later so i definitely get the infatuation i don't always think it's romantic it does feel like it's going in and out but that is so perfectly suited for what this film is doing right Mm -hmm. it's it's Mm -hmm. always shifting gears it's always reconfiguring relationships Mm -hmm. um okay so let's introduce joan played by emma roberts we smash cut to black and then we get joan she's at a bus terminal she goes into the bathroom she gets some kind of visions of an institution and this is when she rips the tag off of her wrist so immediately you're thinking okay she has either just escaped or she is a girl in trouble right Mm. like she had to get out of the hospital for some reason (laughs) um matt i want to tell you though so when i was logging this on my letterbox again uh, i came across your wife's (laughs) letterbox review for this movie which um Mm. she gave it a three and a half but she did say that um this movie would be 82 minutes long if you removed all the smash cuts to black (laughs) wow i thank you for reading that on the air because my wife gives the funniest one sentence letterbox reviews and it's like <laughs> endlessly frustrating to me because this is my career and she's so much better at it than i am that's hilarious because i have often wondered if she is a film critic because of like the very kind of smart concise things that you tweet about her <laughs> yeah it's it's that thing right that like that old mark twain quote like i'm sorry i wrote you such a long letter i didn't have time to write you a short one right it's like she 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 gets that she she eviscerates these movies that she doesn't like and lifts up these movies that she does like in a sentence mm-hmm. and i'm just like fucking wish i had that kind of brevity i will <laughs> i will go on a two-hour podcast and i'll be like oh i left so much money on the table and she's like one <laughs> sentence boom done sent oh my god i love the idea of like there's that show on tv that's like two sentence horror film it's like a new podcast it's just oh, yeah. one sentence horror reviews those are actually pretty fun by the way okay you mentioned something earlier about people complaining about how Roberts's like mannerisms and performance don't match Shipka as well enough. Um, that never really has occurred to me during this because, again, for me, I'm like, okay, nine years and I'm sorry, a nine year stint in a mental institution. I believe mm-hmm. that she would maybe be behaving like her physicality would change. I don't believe that her face would change, but I believe that her physicality might change in those nine years. We actually have a long history in cinema of like different actors playing the same character Mm -hmm. and the film just not really addressing the logistics of it and how Mm -hmm. it kind of asks you by virtue of the power of cinema to say, I'm going to buy this. And I kind of love that it's just like, no, this is the same person. It's just two different actresses. (laughs) Deal with it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure you guys have talked about Emma Roberts a lot on the show and, mm-hmm. you know, some maybe the somewhat contentious things she's done in her personal life in the past. Right. Yeah. I don't always like her in movies. I've seen her in, in films and television shows, but she is so good in this that mm-hmm. it almost it almost doesn't matter. Like they could even look more dissimilar, like it looked less alike and it almost wouldn't matter because they're capturing the character at the point in time, her and right. Shipka. 
And it's sort of like I like I feel for Joan and I feel for Cat and I buy the fact that they're the same character, but the performances are so different and mm-hmm. so necessary for where they are because like Cat is possessed and lost and like Joan is clear-eyed and stomaching the things that she's Mm. doing because she thinks she's going to get the outcome that she deserves even though she's in possession of her faculties and she sort of hates what she's being asked to do or thinks she's being asked to do Mm -hmm. there's such different demands on the performers that it just worked like they're so different and for them to just be played by two different people i can't imagine and i thought about it i can't imagine a, a version of this movie where they age up shipka and have her play that character on the other side, right? I think that yeah. would be awful mm. because you need to be rooted to her story has to begin and end at a place. You can't just have her go past the exorcism at the end of the film. Her story, who she is, has to stop there and she has to become somebody else. Yeah, I I also just love the kind of innocence that we associate with uh Shipka because Trace, I know you said like, oh, maybe she wasn't that famous coming off of Mad Men. But like, the reality is, is that her character on that show was a child and people really praised her for it because she had a maturity that, you know, we praise in child actors. Here she is very clearly a young woman, but she still has that innocence and that naivete to her. And Roberts brings... I mean, she still looks very young in this film, mm-hmm. but she has a sort of, oh my God, this is going to get me in trouble. She has a bit more of like a wizened maturity to her. Like she has lived through shit. One of the things I really like about Robert's performance in this is that she comes off almost like a blank slate. I have no idea who Joan is. I just know that she's being driven to do something. But like, compared to rose and cat i don't understand who she is as a character Mm -hmm. and i think that's why the end plays off so much better because you're like oh that's what was driving her this whole time that's why she was so burned up by all of this Well, and I think just speaking for Roberts, and yeah, we'll, I'll leave out the domestic abuse shit, but yeah. like it, it really is in that post-Scream post 4 career for her, she was really typecast as that bitchy mm-hmm. role in any Ryan Murphy show, whatever, Like, and it will work for you or it won't. I understand people being like, oh, I'm tired of seeing the same old shtick from her because even in like her, the Netflix rom-com movie she did, Holiday, she's basically playing a version of that type of character she's always used to playing. So I think what makes her stand out so much in this is this isn't a showy role for her. Mm -hmm. You said you both said it's very understated. So it's I think when it comes to actresses who become known for being really over the top, bitchy, mean, whatever. Right. I think it's always refreshing to see them do something where or, 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 or if they're perceived as a diva, because I feel like some people do perceive their Roberts to be a diva. Oh, sure. I think it's nice to see that her do a role like this, which is very much against all of, of those critiques that, that have plagued mm-hmm. her career for the past 10 years. Yeah. And, and I think that that's definitely part of it, too, because, you know, one of the fun things that you see in films is you get to see directors and casting directors and performers play with intertextuality and what we know about a performer outside of their films. You know, this movie, Emma Roberts in this role is not unaware of what people think about her. This is not a film that it's like, oh, it was just another role. There's an element of, to me at least, to sort of like, this is a Scream Queen-esque role, mm-hmm. not not the show or, or the, the yeah. actual, yeah, like it's Scream Queen in the classic sense. And it's subverting the expectations of what Roberts does in that. And it requires us to have sort of a preconceived knowledge of what that character should be and what that character should sort of act like. So mm-hmm. she being sort of a final girl esque character 
we need to know a little bit. Of, it helps to know a little bit about the actress going in for what the subversion that uh, Perkins is doing here. And on the contrary, it's great to not feel like you know a lot about Shipka. Um, she's more of a blank slate. She she comes in and she inhabits this character. Robert sort of surprises us with the performance. It's fun when when you're able to watch an actor play against themselves. And I think Roberts does that really well here. Yeah. And it's especially important too, right? Because this is the first scene that we have of this character. And almost immediately she is put into quote unquote peril, right? Like we, we don't know her situation, but she's clearly on the run from something. Mm-hmm. And then she goes outside. Well, she looks at a map so that we know, okay, she's associated in some capacity with Bramford because that's where she's looking. And then outside she runs into Bill who is played by Dexter's dad, James Remar. And he is walking this amazing fine line between helpful older gentleman and creepy predator. And I just loved all of their scenes together because I, like a lot of things that we've talked about in this film, I was trying to get a read on how to feel like, is she playing him? Is he dangerous? Are we going to yeah. get a sexual assault? Like, what is going on right. with these two? I didn't even believe he had a wife when he's like, oh, my wife is in the car. I was like, no, you fucking yep. don't. Uh, the, the wife who will never leave the car, by the way. I made a note of that, too. I was like, oh, <laughs> poor Linda, just always in the car. And God bless Lauren Holly for taking this nothing role, but doing a lot with very little but uh it's um he also uses god as a defense because mm-hmm. like, she asked like why are you why are you being so nice to me why are you doing this and he brings up god and religion and like you know charity and shit like that and mm-hmm. it's just like huh and like this movie doesn't really delve that much into religion outside of this conversation which is interesting given the fact that we are dealing with a possession film Oh, I disagree. We're we've got crosses on the walls in like the first couple of shots of the school. I just mean like discussions of it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Cause I feel like it it's permeating, but you're right, yeah, we're not specifically addressing it, but like it comes up at key points where, you know, at certain points Rose and Kat don't say grace at meals and you kind of think, Oh, okay. Well that leaves the door open for Satan to snatch up your soul. <laughs> and I mean, we do get an actual exorcism later. So yeah, the religion is present, but there's not really a dialogue happening um, in the film, which again, I, I think is by design, like it's intentional. And then the Warrens come in. <laughs> I, uh, I would watch that. I think it's also important to note for people that go into this movie with no preconceived notions, there is a period of time where this movie entertains the idea that Bill and Linda are Kat's parents, that they are the people that are Yes. lost on the road and they're it's never it, it's again ill-defined these kind of liminal states that these characters live in with regards to each other you're never 100 percent, but there's definitely 10 15 minutes of the movie maybe more where you're like oh these are her parents they're stuck along the way they're picking up a girl it's going to make them more late but it's going to be fine because they're going to get there eventually right and it never it never sells that part of it it isn't the point of it isn't a misdirect so much as a like gentle like it could be this or it could be something else yes and that's that's part of the the fun is that little period there where you're like who are these people mm-hmm. which which children which child of theirs goes to bramford and when you yeah. find out it's rose you're like oh, oh. shit i don't hmm. think we're in the same timeline right now <laughs> yeah yeah and the big dead giveaway is like when they drive away after picking her up we see the bramford sticker mm-hmm. on their bumper Mm, good catch <sighs> okay so then we cut back to the school this is when rose and rick come back i do 
love uh, conversations about abortion are always fascinating to me, particularly as a Canadian in American text, because you folks just have a very different relationship to women's reproductive health. And I'm not going to say <laughs> Canadians are better. We have our own issues. But <laughs> Thank you. Um... Thank you, Joe. Yes, we do. Thank you. <laughs> we do have issues. You do have issues, you know, even to the effect where I'm saying abortion, but abortion is not said in this movie. It's like, I'll take care of it. I'll go to the doctor. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, Americans, just say abortion, 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 abortion. Anyway, I find it fascinating that he is actually not a bad dude. Like he clearly wants to be involved and help her. And Rose is just like, no, thank you. I am fine. I will take care of this myself. I've told you I didn't even really want to tell you, but I got this. And uh, Trace, I don't want to I don't want to step on because I know that you have some some notes from the commentary. So if you don't mind, don't mind me stepping on that. No. One of one of the things that I really like that, that Perkins says in the commentary track is he says the introduction of this character is really there just to sort of make you realize that when Rose dies, people are going to miss her. There oh, are going God. to be people that are left. Right. That's awful. <laughs> Holy like fuck. he's like he's like, yeah, this character basically <laughs> exists so that you know that when Rose is gone, there's going to be a fallout. People are going to be like wounded and hurt and upset. And when he said that, it's interesting because that's a piece I think that's missing from a lot of really good horror or really bad horror right. is this idea that, the you know, we always talk about, well, the death should have stakes. Part of having deaths have stakes is people that are not central to the film, secondary and tertiary characters that are going to be super fucked up when you die. So I think he's an interesting little character because once she does die, at some point in the last 20 minutes of the movie, you're going to think, oh, I wonder, I wonder what Paul did with this. Like, I wonder how, oh, that's awful. Like, you think of that, and it makes it just that much worse. Perkins is such an interesting man to listen to and to interview. Um, because the way he talks about these grotesque aspects. I mean, again, like, the scene later when, when, when Shipka's murdering one of the nurses, and he's like, I guess people find this uh, disturbing or upsetting. Um, I don't know. <laughs> like, his career, I mean, I'm sure it comes from, like, growing up like in a Hollywood-centric family. But right. it's been so interesting like, watch his career go from, you know, that dorky guy in Legally Blonde to mm. this. But yeah, so <laughs> so we're about to get another reveal of uh, what Kat's been up to. Uh, yeah, so uh, Rose ends up coming in. She goes to the bathroom, and then she hears whispering and thudding. So she ends up investigating, and this is really our introduction to some of the geography. Uh, you know, we get the hallway with the telephone that we see a couple of times. We see this ominous-looking door at the end of it, and we go down the stairs into the dark, creepy basement, and this is where we see Catherine praying emphatically to a lit boiler and i said that this film isn't particularly scary but these Mm -hmm. shots Mm -hmm. are they're really unnerving and they Mm -hmm. don't make a lot of conventional sense like you expect Blair Witch style stuff you expect like a giant figurine or something that people would be praying to not a fucking furnace and it's really weird and really memorable. There's something about the speed in which she is coming up and down on mm-hmm. this floor that I, I, it looks almost like it's sped up, but I don't yes. think it was. I no. think this was all Shipka. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't even know it was her. In my notes, I was just like, she sees someone doing this. And it wasn't until <laughs> later that I was like, oh, fuck. OK, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we move into act two with the title card, Joan. And she wakes up in a hotel room and... 
like we know that they were driving so to see her wake up in a car to see this card from bill that says you know you look sleepy so i gave you something and i was like holy shit okay he's drugged her he's molested (laughs) her like this movie played with my emotions and expectations Mm -hmm. so she gets into the shower and we pause for a rather lengthy period of time on this gunshot wound in her shoulder and we we hear this gun we we see the flash but we don't know the context it's like okay well well, where did that come from how did this come about and then bill starts knocking on the door and she is only wearing a towel so i'm immediately then back to oh shit he's gonna (laughs) assault her he's gonna rape her i don't want this this is i there is a lot of great and unnerving stuff that happens in this movie this is the most uncomfortable scene in the film for me because you just until it's over you don't you're like Mm -hmm. i found myself releasing a breath i didn't know i held because i was like this could get so awful so quickly yeah and then it's like oh he's not a rapist he's just religious and Mm -hmm. you're like okay all right fair there it is also, there are brown towels in this hotel room, and that is nasty. <laughs> I think this is a motel. <laughs> very true. Very fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is where she asks about why he's helping her. He talks about God because he he saw something in her. And then he asks if she knows about Bramford and... Emma Roberts does this fantastic job where she's looking mm-hmm. at the ground. She won't meet his eyes and she just whispers, when are we going to leave? And he has to ask her to repeat it. And then she kind of comes back to the present moment. And yeah. this is when he says, okay, they're going to they're gonna leave in the morning. She should come down for a dinner. I think it's also really important that there's this moment where Remar, you can just see his eyes like kind of flit up and down her mm-hmm. half naked body. So that that misreading that we all had is actually legitimate. Like, he is creepy in that regard. It's just that he doesn't act on it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we go back yeah. to the school. <laughs> it's back and forth, back and forth. So we're back at the school, and Rose is questioning Catherine about sleepwalking. So now it's Catherine's turn to be in the shower, and Rose is asking about her parents. Does she think that they're going to come? Was she able to get a hold of them? And Catherine is just like, my parents are dead. And also, you smell pretty. True statements both, I think, according to the film. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's actually, it's not, that's not even the most chilling line of this scene to me. It's whenever Rose asks her, is there anything else I can get you? Mm -hmm. And she goes, no, you had your chance. Yeah. (laughs) That was the moment that really cued me that Kat is the one who's going to be dangerous. Because it's so ominous and foreboding, like... No, Rose, you are now in extreme danger because you missed the chance to protect me. And I didn't know what was coming, but it was so clear. And I think Shipka does a really good job of her attitude is now different. Like she is mm-hmm. a different Catherine from before we saw her doing the praying. She, her make, because she, she's got this dark circles under her eyes. Mm-hmm. She is like starting to look very weathered and tired mm-hmm. for the rest of this film. And it, ugh, it like, this performance just like radiates off screen. Yeah. And it, there's definitely a sense too, because like every possession film, you know, or every every demon film ha- talks about that moment where like you let them in, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's like the moment of, of release where you're basically, you stop fighting and it happens. And there that never, that doesn't take place on camera. There isn't this scene where mm-hmm. we see Kat give up and, you know, let go and let Satan. 
But when you meet her, when you see her, when Rose comes back from her date and takes her upstairs in the shower, you recognize that that moment has happened. You yeah. recognize that Kat has sort of given herself over to what's going to happen. And it's, again, all these things that happen off screen. We talk about like not not knowing being you know ambiguity in the film mm-hmm. it's so she's so much more confident which i think is what makes it so much worse is like yeah. all of that uncertainty is gone and yeah. she's she's she knows what she's up she's got it she's she's ready to go but i do love it as well because like trace and i have gone on record i think one of the patreon episodes even we talk about possession films at some length and yeah it's not our favorite subgenre. Like I get really bored with the tropes of possession films. And I didn't realize that's what I was watching here because it's not doing that. Like it is, but not in the same way. You know, she's not strapped to a bed in a white nightgown talking about, mm-hmm. you know, sex with your mom and spitting pea grease soup or something like that. Like this is understated. And I really appreciated that. The closest we get to those kind of possession tropes is actually in the next scene whenever we see Kat like doing contortions in her bed. I actually do like this. It's did y'all because the first shot we get is really just of Kat under her sheets and she's like being pressed into the mattress. Did y'all get like implications of sexual assault as like the method in which this demon enters her body no i didn't even think about it i just thought the way that this scene was filmed which again we're under the sheets it's just her it's close extreme close up on her face Mm -hmm. she's being pressed in and then we just kind of get her like struggling under the bed under the sheets before she you know lifts her legs back so i always viewed this as the moment in which the demon does finally like take over the read that i have had again like individual scenes will change when i rewatch this movie Mm -hmm. which is part of what i love about it Sometimes when I watch this, I read that as a masturbation scene. Yeah. Because I yeah. think that I think there is there is a touch of that connected with the confidence and the recency of the devil stuff. There is kind of that like it seems almost like sexual pleasure, but it clearly isn't at the same time. So right. you know, and then of course immediately followed by the contortionist thing, and you're mm-hmm. sort of like, Well, whatever is happening, I'd want no part of it. Well, here's <laughs> the thing. Do you believe that this is still cat from this moment on, or is it something altogether different? I think it's something else, and I'll probably change my mind as we go through the plot because I don't, (laughs) I don't think because you know we'll have cat vomiting up when she's like doing trying to say the Lord's prayer by grace ahead. So I, Mm -hmm. if she's not completely possessed by this demon yet, which maybe that is the ritual. I guess it's the ritual with the boilers, but is what's completing the possession process, Mm -hmm. but. He's definitely um, dipped his toes into her soul a little bit uh, by this point. Yeah, I don't ever, I don't ever view Cat as not Cat. It's more of like a religious mania where she sort of like lets, like she's not not in control of her her own faculties, but she's also she's allowing herself to be caught up in the moment, and mm-hmm. that moment just happens to be like whatever pressure or or right. you know, like we've it, it, I we grew up in a religious household as a kid and like you get into those like youth group praying kind of things and it's really easy to just sort of be like, yeah, I'm gonna sway too, because everybody around me swaying it. It just right. feels right. Her prolonged possession never feels like she's been replaced. It just feels like she's swaying with the music, that that she's caught up in the moment and things are happening. And so she's there, but she's also sort of not there. Mm -hmm. Again, that makes it hard for me to kind of figure out in any given moment, other than like the really obvious ones, where she seems more in control of herself and where she isn't. And I think that's kind of backed up a little bit by when she sees the father for the last time near the end of the movie and he goes, oh, there she is. Mm -hmm. Sort of like this idea that she's floating in and out 
out of herself. Right. Oh, see, I read because I, I thought I thought he says there you are because I always read that as that's when he the demon makes eye contact with him. No, I saw it as cat. That's the moment where cat like, surfaces see, for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Uh, see, I, I read it because he, he starts to do the exorcism right after she makes that look at him. So I thought it was like, oh, like he's waiting for the demon to show itself so he can start the exorcism. Oh, uh, see, I read it as she's still in there and that's the sign that he should proceed because she's worth saving. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, let's jump back to the restaurant. Let's grab some dinner with Bill and Joan. So he tells her that she reminds him of his dead daughter from nine years ago. So just in case you were wondering, Rose. Okay, so now we have a kind of establishment that we are operating under two different times. Mm -hmm. Clearly, I was not paying as much attention as I should have. So... This is when Joan bails to go to the bathroom, and we see that she has a fake license, so her name may not even be Joan. <gasps> Shocker. There we go. That tracks. And this is when we get that part that I was talking about earlier, where she goes in and she, like, laughs, mm-hmm. because she is like, what a coincidence. <laughs> it's a sign. It's a sign, yeah. See, that's hilarious, because when you said it, I remembered the visual, but I thought that like, I didn't make the connection, so I didn't really understand why she was laughing. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. That's what I'm saying. A rewatch, man. <laughs> <laughs> Watch this six more times, and then we'll re-record this whole fucking episode. There we go. There we go. Okay. <laughs> so she comes out of the bathroom, and she sees that there's, like, a, a state trooper or some kind of police officer talking to Bill, and she kind of hides, and you see this shot of a steak knife. And for me, on a first watch, I was just thinking, oh, okay, so she's just worried about being discovered because she's escaped from this mental institution, mm. so she's just going to do that in case she needs to get out of here quickly. It's so interesting hearing you say all of this, because, true. I mean, again, I saw this movie seven years ago for the first time and i don't remember what i was thinking when this happened and so watching it again this week i was just like i don't remember what i thought like where i thought mm-hmm. the narrative was going the first time i saw this movie i couldn't tell you but mm-hmm. hearing you vo- voice what you thought is very fascinating right a first watch is so different from when you know where the film is going mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so by this point this officer has left so it's just bill he tells her that there's a big store and they need to get in the car they're gonna go right now uh and then this is when we get this basically this is like lauren holly's only big moment in this entire movie she delivers this monologue about this other girl that bill has done this to and it's fascinating and again i didn't really understand the context like am i meant to know or care about any of this apart from the fact that these two are just really sad adults. And Matt, do you have anything to say about this that you gleaned from the commentary? Uh, well, other than the logistics of how this the scene yeah. was shot, I'll, I'll leave that to you because I think that's a good story. And I stole, I stepped on your last commentary track. No, <laughs> I'm gonna give this, I'm gonna give this one to you. It's okay, it's okay. Um, no, uh, ba- ba- she did this in two takes. Whoa, really? Perkin, hey, it's freezing. Um, they're like in a tent, forty feet away, like just like watching the footage. And mm-hmm. um, he didn't really have time to direct her, so she like came out on the plane one day. They're they're doing the scene in the car the next day, and he goes, "You know what? Just do it twice. Like just do it, and then do it again, mm-hmm. and we'll see." And they used the first take she did. Whoa. Talk about a pro. The only note he gave her before she started was, I want you to start looking, like, to start the monologue looking away. And then mm-hmm. as you say the monologue, start gradually looking at Joan. And yeah. that was the only note he had given her. And she nailed it. I will say the one of the weird things about this is that I still was trying to piece out exactly who Joan was in relationship to some of these other people. Like, we know that 
these are Rose's parents and we know what Rose looks like. And Bill has mm-hmm. said, you remind me of my daughter at this point. And I just thought, oh, well, no, she doesn't. Like, she actually looks more like Karen and Shipka. And then <laughs> as Linda is delivering this monologue, she she kind of ends by saying, and you look nothing like Rose. But in that moment, after all of these words, after this story, I could actually understand why Bill might think that Joan looks like Rose. Like I was actually starting to fall into <laughs> it. And I was just like, that is a really fucking good monologue. Holy cow. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and the way she closes it, when she says, it's strange. I can't see you at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Wow. Okay. That, that really just resonated with me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, so we're on to the next morning, and this is when Rose sees Catherine on the phone. So she asks her once again, you know, like, hey, what's going on? Were you able to get a hold of anybody? And Catherine just goes on about how she's going to start living at the school with Mr. Gordon, and he's given her the okay. And you're just like, wait, what? What are you talking about? And I, I definitely flash back to that first scene where she's meeting with the priest and she's saying like, oh, you know, and like maybe she just has a really fucked up relationship with the men at this mostly women's boarding school. Like maybe we're just doing daddy's issues, the movie. <laughs> I love that you don't know yet what's going on. <laughs> I mean, I, I was being a Trace Thurman and I was like, I'm just watching this movie. I'm not aggressively trying to figure it out. <laughs> that No, and that's perfect. That's how you should do it. <laughs> Uh, this is where we get the reiteration that Rose smells good. And I was like, mm. oh, that is a weird thing to say to somebody that you do not want to fuck. I guess, I guess the first, I, I, I was just like, oh, maybe that's just a requirement that the demon has. Like, uh, give me some two old biddies and then get me someone that smells pretty. <laughs> give me something fresh. <sighs> so then we're at breakfast. And at this point, like, even me, the person who was not actively trying to figure out anything, is like, wow, Catherine looks like absolute dog shit at this breakfast. And then that's when she stands up and pukes all over the table. You can't have a, you can't have a possession movie without a little good puke. I you mean, a little puke, it's, it's right? a prerequisite. Mm-hmm. Apparently, this, was in, this is supposed to be milk. And I don't like he says mother's milk in the commentary, but I don't know if there's any significance or symbolism to that. But it's hmm. not supposed to be like her stomach, the contents of her stomach. It's just milk coming out of her body gross yeah (laughs) so they check her out and this is where we get your line reading so miss drake goes to examine her and Catherine says keep your hands off me cunt and then she begins (laughs) crying and mumbling more about mr gordon i'm just like wow okay so she really wants to stay at the school but also she's clearly possessed at this point and then I love the way that Perkins uh, shoots this. Like we get the phone call and both of the nurses move into the other room to take this. But we don't hear the phone call. Like so many phone calls we don't understand, but we can read the context clues because mm-hmm. then Rose gets called over and it's like, yeah, we're going to need you to shovel out the snow because <laughs> uh, somebody's coming back because something really fucking awful has happened. Cat's parents are definitely dead. So we then follow rose as she is out there just kind of huffing and puffing clearing away this snow and then she discovers that she's locked out so she's like well fuck all of you i'm just gonna go back and take a nap and then mr gordon arrives with the police and they can't get in and it feels almost like a weird comedy of errors like haha nobody can get into the house (laughs) and then we just get this great 
panning shot across the living room nothing 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 and then just a little bit of blood where mr gordon enters and he has a reaction and we don't get to see it and god damn did i want to know what he saw (laughs) i'm so glad you mentioned the panning shot too because that is such it it stands out if only because we don't have really any of that in this film Mm -hmm. like so much of this film is built on just like you know static camera shots and then we get this one this complete like 360 pan Mm -hmm. and who boy is it effective yeah like it's a simple fucking camera trick it's not even a trick it's like just what a lot of directors will do it's like yeah i move the camera but here it feels showy and extravagant well it's almost a relief right because we've spent the entire like this is a movie about everybody who's like when's the bad thing gonna happen Mm -hmm. you know the bad thing is coming and so like this one little bit of flashy cinematography right before the bad thing finally happens. It's mm-hmm. almost sort of like, oh, thank God, there it is. Like, right. now now that I, I can stop anticipating it, and now that I know that it's actually <laughs> here, um, it makes sense that, that he would choose to get just a little bit more playful with the camera on that moment. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, give me that cathartic violence. I, I will say, too, I'm such a cheap mark when it comes to certain types of visuals. <laughs> I fucking love a, oh, there's a spot of blood or a handprint and we don't Mm -hmm. know whose it is or what has happened and we will find out later. Like, fucking give me that shit all day long. Well, also the restraint of not zooming in on the blood stain. It'd be like, just in case you didn't see it, Mm -hmm. here it is. (laughs) This is not massive. Like, you could hypothetically miss it, especially if you're focusing on Mr. Gordon because he's having this magic moment like, oh, shit. Yeah. So we move into the final section with Kat. And this is when we are back to her crossing out the calendar. So we're we're actually starting to repeat imagery that we've already seen. But of course, it's now in a very different context. We understand things differently. Mm-hmm. So we know she's anticipating her parents. And now, of course, we know, oh, those fuckers are dead. And then we see the shot of her in the tub. And this is interesting because we've seen this shot from Joan's perspective when she's taking her shower. So really, that should have been the giveaway. Well, and this is also, um, is this the first time we get the horn demon reflection? Yeah, so we pan over and we just see this horned demon in the tile. And I was not ready. Like, I, I didn't... You know something bad is happening. Like, we've already seen blood. We know somebody's probably dead. I didn't think that we were going to get horned demon reflections in this. And it's so simple and so Mm -hmm. effective. Do y'all like that it makes the demon explicit in the film? Well, well, actually, that's Mm -hmm. a question, too. Do you think it's explicit? Because this also could be just something in Kat's head or it could be a real demon. I I think it has to be. So part of the reason that I like it is you need to have something. You can't have ambiguity as to whether it's all in her head Mm -hmm. because the final scene requires her to have lost something that she's feeling the the absence of something and i suppose that could be a delusion right i suppose it could be like an imaginary friend or something but no but it could be her parents too because isn't that really the loss at the center of the film like she does all of this because she is grief stricken over the loss of her parents it, it, yeah. it is true it is true but her her catharsis her coping mechanism was to give herself over to this entity whether right. real or imagined right and yeah. so it needs to feel like an actual physical tangible presence in her life for us to understand the absence of it when she does what she does uh, as Joan a little bit later so mm-hmm. I think you need to show it because you need to if it's just something that's in her head 
you know, you need the scene where it fades on her and she says, wait, come back. You need there to be something that she perceives that she can feel the absence of it when it's not there. Well, and I think it makes it less interesting if it's a, oh, she's just mentally unwell. Like, mm-hmm. I think that makes it a much less interesting story. I, I love the fact that this is bare bone structure. Mm-hmm. The exorcist, if Reagan wanted to be possessed. Basically. Yeah. 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 That's it. I think one of the reasons that I wasn't putting all these pieces together is because I really, and maybe this is where I've been in the last five years, because it's honestly been a super tropey thing that horror films are doing recently. I did think that it was a, is she going mad? Is this a mental illness story? And Mm -hmm. sure, like we're seeing things that she is seeing, but it doesn't actually mean that any of this is actually happening. For sure. Because I've I've been burned with that and it's not my favorite kind of storytelling. So I was really happy that that's not where this film goes. No, I'm with you. I'm, I'm have hit a very strong point of fatigue when the supernatural thing isn't actually a supernatural thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I, I feel so much relief when the ghost is a ghost or the yes. creature is a creature, I'm like, thank you. Can we please get back to this? Because yeah. we have done really good work, especially over the last 15 years or so with mental illness as a, as a horror trope. I think there's been a lot of really good stories that have explored a lot of facets of that. But just as there are movements and, and periods of film that, that tackle a topic and it needs to kind of rise and fall, mm-hmm. I think everything is about that now and yeah. so part yeah. of especially watching this when i watched this which would have been about 2017 2018 oh, watch, watching a movie where it's basically like is she crazy no nope, yep. it's the devil it's the devil You're like oh thank god like it's actually <laughs> oh, thank the, god devil. It's the devil <laughs> <laughs> no because I, I am honestly right there and it's always women-centered narratives too like i get mm-hmm. it it's a reflection of how society mistreats and doesn't believe women but I'm also fucking exhausted of yeah. seeing women not believed or women made to be crazy for the purposes of telling a story about whatever, whatever. So yeah, yeah give 100%. me the devil, give me Satan any day. Okay, so we get a shot of her preparing to make a phone call. <laughs> Again, in hindsight, as I'm reading this, it's so fucking obvious, but I swear, <laughs> like, she's holding the change in the exact same way that we saw Joan hold the change before she made the phone call. <laughs> it's like, I mean, but I think that's where the casting comes into play, right? Because I don't think for a single second you're watching this movie being like, oh, they're playing the same character. Exactly. So yeah. it is a bit of a cheat slash trick for me, but it just, you know. It mm-hmm. works. It works now for me. Yeah. So I said that this film isn't particularly scary, but I definitely got chills up my spine when she makes this phone call and there's just this voice that answers that says, hi, baby girl. Have y'all ever seen the Mothman prophecies, the Richard Gere movie? Oh, yeah. I love that Long one. Long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So there, there's a scene where like, like the Mothman or Indrid Cold like calls him on the phone and mm-hmm. it's like the most terrifying voice you've ever heard in your entire life. Right. This was very much giving me those kind of vibes. Mm-hmm. And um, again, another commentary tidbit, but the voice of the demon is Paul Jasmine, who was one of three people who voiced Mother in the original Psycho. Really? Mm-hmm. How interesting. I mean, I guess he maybe has that connection. Perkins. Yes. It's a phone call. <laughs> but wait, he goes, hi, baby girl. Or hi, he goes, hi, baby girl. Catherine, mm-hmm. they're not coming. Kill, Kill all, all the, the cunts. cunts. Which there are only women left in this uh, boarding school, so Mm -hmm. it's literal. Yeah. So she hangs up and then we get all of these scenes from early in the film, again, from different perspectives. So we see her staring at something near the piano and another just absolute banger of a scene when we hear Rose telling her the story about, oh, the nuns Mm -hmm. don't have hair. 
and her voice is barely audible. It's super distorted, mm-hmm. and it's because this fucking horn thing is lurking in the corner. Oh, <laughs> it's so creepy. It's so good. <laughs> It's a, an underrated element. Like mm-hmm. we watch so many people play with sound design and foley, and like have all of these different ways of representing the monster. And then every mm-hmm. now and then you watch a movie where they do like a demon voice, and it like it really gets under your skin, and you're like, oh, you can still be surprised by this stuff. That's awesome. Well, and and this visual of something nefarious and threatening just there, not moving, not doing anything. Again, mm-hmm. it brought me back to the Lords of Salem where there's the the creatures kind of lurking in Heidi's apartment, yeah. but they don't move. And there's something so much more scary about I'm just hanging out. I'm biding my time because I know I've already got you. Yeah, I wrote in my notes when I was rewatching it, something that struck me this time is that you see, that, I mean, even possession films and things like that, they have scenes in motion. There are stalking scenes, there are chase scenes, there are hunt scenes. There's there's a period of time where a character could get away and that's supposed to make everything so much worse, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the character could have gotten away. They had, a, they had an opportunity to fight back or right. resist. And there is none of that in this movie. It is a slow decline to the inevitable. Mm -hmm. What happens to each of these characters is preordained and predestined. And there's no, like you said, Joe, there's no urgency. Like, why the fuck would the devil hurry? He knows what's going to go. You know, he knows what's (laughs) going to happen and how it's going to play out. Mm. And it's just like, again decisions choices as a filmmaker the fact that there is nothing is rushed in this movie there are there's no chase because there's there there's no escape so why would you chase well and that's again i mean i don't want to go into a whole laborious conversation about how these types of movies are quote-unquote boring but yeah i mean it's something i always do i always like go through my letterbox like oh what did people think of the movie that we're talking about this week Mm -hmm. and yeah i saw one that was like it was a one-star review and it was like one of the most boring movies i've ever seen and it doesn't even build up to anything and it was one of of those things where i was like okay but that's objectively wrong Hmm. like it is building up (laughs) to something <sighs> my favorite genre of horror has always been you you tell me like i don't get scared like i don't jump at movies and movies that like do jump scares like yeah that'll get you for a second but mm-hmm. it's it's fleeting right like you're yeah. like oh okay like you got me to jump who cares the movies that fuck me up that i come back to again and again and again are the movies that within five minutes you're like something bad is going to happen mm-hmm. and then you spend 90 minutes waiting for the it's bad thing to happen like it. Yeah. it just it just makes you it's like it's the the frog in the pot thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like you turn it up really hot, it'll jump right out. But if it's one of these movies that just sort of slowly turns up the heat a little bit at a time, you're just like, oh, yeah. 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 I mean, this is the moment where I realize, oh, if something bad does happen to Rose, all of her stuff is almost rendered inconsequential, but not in a, oh, we wasted our time following her, but like... Rose thinks that she is the protagonist of her own story, and that's why we got to see that moment in the car. But what we're seeing unfolding is so much bigger and so much more threatening, and all of her personal drama is just going to be brutally stabbed away in just a couple of minutes. And it makes you ache, because rose had a whole other life she had things yeah. that she was gonna do and it's like no sorry you dormed next to satan and now you're fucked well trace you said earlier that it's really hard for you to go back and, and remember what you were experiencing the first time you watched this and i agree 
one of the only things that I do remember is up until the very end, I was like, they're not going to kill Rose. How can they kill Rose? I thought the same thing. <laughs> and I thought I that she was going to get out of this because I'm like, no, she, that's why she got locked out. Like, she's sleeping. She's safe in the other building. She's not mm-hmm. in any... Da- oh, fuck. She's clearly the final girl. She's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And her death is... Um, oh, boy. Her death is brutal. Yep. And just sad. Just, mm-hmm. just sad. It is... So we we get shots of Kat investigating the boiler room, and then we see Prescott and Drake getting stabbed a bunch. This is all very upsetting, but it's also, yeah, like as horror fans, okay, we knew that something was going to happen in this room, so we're not overly surprised. Yeah, right. fuck them nuns. We knew they were going to die. Right. <laughs> So then we fade to black, and this is where we get the return of Rose posing for her picture. And this is the moment that you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. Trace, where her smile fades to this grimace of uncertainty. And it's, ooh, like, it, it, this is the kicker, right? I think mm-hmm. this is the moment where you realize Rose is not going to get out of this. You can read so much into this look, and I love that Perkins comes back to this moment. It's just... Uh, it, 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 like Monagle said, it's sad. It's mm-hmm. very sad. Yeah. yeah. So she she wakes up from her nap, and we know at this point, Cat's parents are dead, the nuns are dead, but maybe Rose is safe. We could we could still hold on to that for a moment. She goes to the bathroom. She gets her period, and you can see this slight smile, like ah, oh, this relief. Okay, yeah. I don't have to worry about it. I'll apologize to Rick tonight. We'll pick things back up. It's all good. And then she hears a sound and she investigates a stairwell. And this is fleetingly shot to the point where I actually had to pause and rewind a couple of times because I couldn't figure out if it's a body, but it's just bags of bloody clothes and like rags and stuff. Got it. So, okay, this when when Kat walks out to stab her, Mm -hmm. did this not feel like an homage to that? very famous jump scare from the exorcist three maybe i because we we have this kind of scare where it's oh we're looking at this bloody bag oh my god that's so scary ah Mm -hmm. walk around turn inside and then we just have cat like no music cue no nothing just come out Mm -hmm. the door and just stab the fuck out of her Mm -hmm. and it's brutal euphoric she's in a state of religious ecstasy yeah it's such a it's not a gory scene but like it's it's the the sound Mm -hmm. of the 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 knife entering her body and it's just it's prolonged it's a very prolonged death scene yeah and and i would actually argue that prescott and drake's is more violent and more prolonged but we know rose so seeing her on the floor and the camera's kind of close up on her face but we can see cat's feet and i i just kept waiting for her to continue stabbing and she doesn't so we just have to watch rose die yeah Mm -hmm. just bleed out Ugh, it's awful and just when you think you finally wrapped you like you're like that was uncomfortable but at least the worst is over Mm -hmm. there's the very gentle very loving grab of the hair and the slow lift and which again it, a little sexual i'm not gonna lie a little sexual but just like intimate and and uh, yeah like that that is there's not a lot of movie deaths that haunt me that fucked me up but i think rose in the black coat's daughter is a death that like it's it's a it's a saving private ryan kind of death where you're like i know i gotta watch this happen but mm-hmm. like my god it's so bad i i think it's even more tragic because she really didn't see like she has no yeah. idea what's happening yeah. to her and i always think that's always like that, that makes for a more tragic death is when it's a, a character you like who doesn't know why this is being done to them mm-hmm. and she will never know rose doesn't even know she's in a horror film like yeah. 
She thinks that she got away with having to go home for the winter break so that she could deal mm-hmm. with an unwanted pregnancy. Yeah. And instead she gets brutally stabbed to death and then decapitated. Yeah. I, I think that's a, a great observation. I think that's a great way of wording it. Rose does not know that she's in a horror film. Mm-hmm. Every 99% of horror films, those characters, they're they're aware on some level that they're in a horror film. Right. It's a rare thing for a character to die before they realize what's going on. Yeah. R- R- Rose is in a pregnancy drama. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it in some ways, this feels a little Black Christmassy, but not on the slasher spectrum. But it's like, mm-hmm. we've got this subplot of an unwanted pregnancy, and it's almost like a domestic drama. Except then when it intersects with horror, it's like, oh, no, this poor character, you thought you were off in this other movie. And instead, again, as yep. I said, you're fucked. Yeah. It's just like if you were watching Obvious Child and suddenly someone came on oh stage God. and started stabbing <laughs> Jenny Slater to death and you're like, oh, different movie. <laughs> I didn't think I was watching this. Uh, I thought I was watching the Happy Abortion movie. Right? Sidebar, uh, Obvious Child is a fantastic movie. Mm-hmm. It's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we fade to black and we resume with Mr. Gordon entering the house. So we get a repeat of this panning shot across the living room. He comes in, he gasps. But again, we don't we don't see him actually interact with the bodies or anything because we're too busy following a trail of blood in the snow. Beautiful. And then we see a smear of blood on a window pane. We don't know where we are anymore. We're following an officer who discovers Cat kneeling with three heads next to the boiler is 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 this tableau not one of the prettiest and most horrifying things you've ever seen to the point where i once again found that i was focusing on the wrong things kind of like when gordon enters and you you're either focusing on him or you're seeing the blood i was focusing on cat because i'm like oh shit she's back in the boiler room she's doing that thing what's now god what's next to her on the ground oh god yeah Mm. And the again, I know, I know, we just said earlier. Well, this film's not really scary, but when she turns around mm-hmm. and she just starts kind of like walking, but almost gliding towards this police officer, mm-hmm. and then the raising of her arms. Yep. I yeah. Another another uh, commentary track note for you. Perkins talks about the fact that they did have prosthetics for Shipka post-possession that they had tried out and he went to her and he said we don't need them your performance is good enough and i can't imagine a better like in in, among the movies that i love i can't imagine a better creative non-decision than not letting her wear prosthetics in this final scene because that would have man that would have undercut it so hard like she she looks it and yes her performance is selling it what kind of prosthetics does he mention like horns or contact lenses or something I mean, think The Exorcist. I bet you there'd be like probably facial facial yeah. lacerations or something. Oh, Fuck, maybe she would have a horn coming out of her head. <laughs> I think he just referred to them as possession prosthetics. Mm-hmm. Which, okay. You know, you can you can right. decide for yourself what that means. Yeah, thank God, because no, it absolutely does not need it. This is again very unsettling, very uncomfortable. Shipka is selling the shit out of this. She is not doing anything except saying "Hail Satan," and Ugh. I can understand why this police officer shoots her. which is saying a lot in 2022 yeah this police officer shot a child in 2022 and Mm -hmm. joe was like yeah okay (laughs) 
I mean, it's not every day you come across a young woman with three heads next to her. So that is yeah. true. Okay, so this is when we cut back to Joan. So it, it, you almost forget at this point. We haven't seen yes. Joan in a while, right? No, it's a thing where it's like, oh, right. Because like, this feels like the climax of like the end of the movie, right? Absolutely. Which it kind of, yeah. And then it's like, oh, wait, fuck, we have this other story to finish. Oh, God, what's going to happen? Well, and to the point where I'm just thinking, what more story is there left to tell, right? And then I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, okay, well, people always talk about grief and loss with this movie, so it must be Joan reconciling something to do with the events at Bramford. And because we've seen the flowers in the back of the car, so it's like, okay, they're they're going to go, they're going to pay their respects. <laughs> no, not quite. So the car is approaching Bramford, and the plan is not to stop there, right? It is to go to the cemetery so that we can put the flowers on Rose's grave, and instead, Joan, like Rose, pretends that she is ill so that she can get them to stop. They pull mm. over to the side of the road. She then brutally murders them and then okay, vomits. Wait, I'm, I'm sorry. Bill gets off easy. Bill gets his throat slashed. Mm -hmm. Linda mm -hmm. gets stabbed a whole bunch of times. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. So here's a here's a very Matt Monagle sentence for you. I find this scene and um, a scene from Ravenous to be like one <laughs> wonderfully mirror image of each other's. Because if you, you've seen Ravenous, you know the cave scene mm -hmm. yeah. where um, Robert Carlyle's character, Calhoun Ives, there's people in, that are in the caves yeah. and characters are yelling and the music is overamped. So mm -hmm. it kind of like blurs the dialogue a little bit. And then there you can kind of see carlisle's performance as he's giving up the facade yeah Th there is a lot of production elements that sort of mirror that we're like you know linda and bill are arguing with each other but the music the leveling on the music is ramped up so hard that it's almost kind of hard to hear what they're yelling at each other about mm -hmm. yeah and you just sort of see her like prepare herself for what she's about to do those are two scenes that are that just shine so bright in my head as perfect little combinations of like music and violence and performance and i always whenever i watch this and see that i always think of the scene in ravenous too and i'm like man if you're gonna if you're gonna have a reveal in a movie it should be at least as good as this yeah yeah do we foresee this coming because in some ways this felt just as inevitable as other moments in the film and yet i was still very taken off guard well i think it's i i think it's a combination of the way it's filmed is so matter of fact right like it's not mm. it's not presented as oh look here's the big murder set piece it just is it just I don't even think the score accompanies it, to be honest. It's unsettling in its normalcy. I think up till this point, I'm going to assume that I didn't see the horrific murders of both people in the car happening. Mm -hmm. I think I think the read that I had on it at this point was this was still Joan reads as as a regret and guilt, right? Like okay. a lot of what you're seeing with her character is you're thinking that she's struggling right. a little bit with the actions that she did. And like to have to be here, it's there's a part of this that is an opportunity for like reconciliation or at least forgiveness a little bit. And then of course it isn't, but mm -hmm. I think that's like in the, in the seconds leading up to it, I'm like, I know I never saw, I never saw murder happening. I thought maybe there was something else would happen, but I still wanted to believe until the very end that, that Joan had an opportunity to make amends. Right. Um, some sort of 12 steps thing that she was embarking on. <laughs> well, there's just one step. It's stab. Well, and that's the thing too, I guess. Yeah. If you, if you don't realize yet by this point that Joan and, and, and Kat are the same person, it really is like, yeah, where, what is she mm -hmm. doing? Mm -hmm. And 
I, I do want to say that it took up until, like, the reveal of Joan in that boiler room for me to be like, oh, shit. Oh, yeah. No, this this was me, Dum Dum, being like, I don't get it. Why did she just kill them? That seemed unnecessary. <laughs> well, and we had that great shot of her putting their heads in the bag, too. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. All moments in hindsight where you think, oh, as you said, Monaco, it's not a twist. This has all been telegraphed. It's just a matter of have you been picking up the signs or have you been choosing right. to overlook it? I similarly saw Joan as a a down on her luck girl who was maybe on the run from something and she seemed troubled to me. And then she murders these these people and it feels like, oh shit, she's a cold-blooded killer. But then she vomits and I'm like, mm, well, people don't usually commit murders and then vomit like... <laughs> So she's obviously processing something or she's maybe feeling regret for this. So I'm all over the place. But yeah, then she's decapitating them. She's putting their heads into a carry-on. And we get this long sequence where she wipes up the blood off of her face and applies mm -hmm. makeup because she's going on a date. Yep. But we don't get it because Perkins is a sadist and is like, nope. I, we're drawing this out just a little bit longer so we fade to black again and now we're back with cat she wakes up she's shackled like christ in this hospital bed and this is when father brian who we have not seen since that basically first scene in the movie he comes back and he orders whatever's inside catherine to leave because it is unwanted hmm what a perplexing choice of words this is mm -hmm. such a fantastic sequence i i love yeah I, her saying oof, don't go yes, is one of the yes. saddest things it, <laughs> yep. it's that and emma roberts crying that is just oh hello this film just went up like a full star in my <laughs> books well it's crazy because you have to think about the the sequence of these events where like joan is revealed as a, when we know she's a murderer but joan is revealed to continue and still be a murderer right and we're like okay then then she is a monster and then mm -hmm. we flash back to shipka and you realize that she lost the entity and then you're like, okay, so she's going to reconnect. Right. And then at the end, nothing happens. And you're like, yep. Joan has to reconcile with the fact that not only has she lost the you love know, of her the last person, the love of her life is the last person she loved, but she everything that she did to try and win him back uh. was clear eyed and clear heart. She mm -hmm. knew she damned herself yes. with full, full knowledge of what was going to happen because she thought it would bring back the entity, the man that she loved, and it didn't happen. And those tears at the end are for everything in her life it's for her parents yeah it's for the things that she's done it's for the love that she lost it's just like the ability for them to take you through a 11 minute journey with emma roberts and make you strongly dislike her mm -hmm, and then be mm -hmm. completely perplexed by her and then like want to give her a hug it's just it's such everything that happened in terms of the way the story was set up and those bits of like you know, non-linear storytelling, it all has to work just so, so that we can give you tremendous whiplash with her character at the very end. Mm -hmm. That sobbing is... The scream crying? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It, it's the first one she does, and you're just like, oh, God. Like, it's, it's so effective. She's so good. And the fact that this is the final shot yes. of the film... Mm -hmm. I love the implications. I love this idea that we've been watching a really fucked up, almost romance tragedy when we thought we were mm -hmm. watching some kind of possession side slasher abortion drama. Like 
this film is giving you everything and absolutely nothing that you expected. And then it leaves you with zero sense of closure, except for, well, everything is awful. Good night, everyone. So I, I got one final quote from Perkins, and it's it's Monagle kind of summarized it a little bit, but he goes a little bit further. So he says, for me, the movie is about the end. It's about the last moment where Joan is done with everything she thought she had to do in order to feel connected, in order to feel held and feel safe. She did all these terrible, terrible things, only to realize that everything's been lost and she's been, she's made a horrible mess of things. It's that emptiness. For me, the movie is about loss. It's about the loss of parents and the feeling of what do you do after? And I did the math. His his father would have died when he was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, again, I, I posited this earlier, but if a portion of this film was him also working through his grief of his father's death. For sure. And he, di- he did murder a bunch of people at the boarding yeah. academy that he went to <laughs> in the name of Satan and then had Satan exercised out of him. So this could be biographical. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't really have anything else to say on the ending. I just, I think it's a perfect ending. It's the saddest horror film I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and I have never cared so much about, like, we continue a lot of times to have these conversations about film and social media where we're like, oh, audiences can't handle unlikable or complicated, you know, mm-hmm. like movies have to telegraph. And I, I, a, I don't, I think that that it's nonsense. The, yes. I think it's, I think it's nonsense. I also think the, the side of things that asks for moral certainty is, is sort of a straw man for a lot of these arguments. I don't think it's out there as much as we think it is, Right. but as long as there are movies like the black coat starter, which can make you openly care so deeply for the worst person, just because of how alone they are. Right. Like, a24 wishes right like there, there are so many other movies that wish they could have this moment of tragic catharsis it's like hereditary never quite gets to where this movie gets oh. and spends the entire movie trying so hard uh, to make that happen. i think some I mean, people are gonna fight you on that matt i don't care i'm a guest i don't have to i don't have to listen to comments and stuff i get to i get to mary poppins in here and be like here's my thoughts i'll never talk to you again <laughs> goodbye <laughs> uh, and joe and joe what were your final thoughts on this film Yeah, I mean, I said I made the joke that this film has really been like just hanging out and I've been processing it and trying to think, okay, I'd heard so much about it and then I finally see it. And now what do I think about it? Did it live up to these probably unrealistic expectations? And Mm -hmm. I liked a lot of it. And then the end of it just absolutely sells it. Like, I don't know that I've seen a film stick the landing this strongly and then linger because that's what the ending does right the movie is over and you are still replaying it and thinking about the consequences and the implications and just feeling these feels it is so fucking well done i just i honestly was kind of stunned after it ended i just watched the credits yeah and thought and like wow okay I'm kind of stupefied right now. It's mm-hmm. absolutely excellent. I'm really glad you thought that. And uh, Matt, thank you for joining us on this show. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will close my conversation about Black Coat's daughter with I did probably the same time you did, Trace. Oz Perkins came to Austin and he did a round of press uh, for Gretel and Hansel. I had the opportunity to interview him, which was mm-hmm. a big deal for me, obviously. Yeah. And I will. I will never forget that. Um. I. I, I have a line about to myself kind of a line that I don't like to cross where I'm like, I'm here to, to do the interview right. and like, I'm, you know, I don't want to talk about other stuff. And I'm like my, my opinions on your work or whatever, like you won't remember this. I probably won't remember this. Like, let's keep it about this. I broke it for Oz Perkins because I told him, I just got to say, I think this is the, the best, best horror film of the last 10 years. 
and I will never forget that his response to that was only the last 10 years. Ah. And, I just, and I love him for that so much. That is exactly the interaction that I wanted to have. You know what? You got to teach your own horn because nobody else is going to do it. So hell yeah. Him. Know that you created a masterpiece, man. That's awesome. No, I know when I did that interview with him, I just I, I had a bunch of softball questions. I didn't have anything like super strong to ask him, but uh, he was he was a delightful interview. He just he's just a very like quirky little man. Yeah, very thoughtful. <laughs> Oh, boy. Well, that has been The Black Coat's Daughter, everyone. And before we tease what we are covering next week, Matt, let everyone know where they can find you on social media. Hey, you should follow me on Twitter at Matt Monagle, uh, where I do a lot of film criticism, horror film criticism, and also some tabletop criticism, mm-hmm. kind of getting into that. That's <laughs> a, a new healthy lane, you know, diversify your portfolio. You can also check out, as the gentleman here alluded to at the top of the show, you can check out Certified Forgotten, which is our podcast, all the places you can find podcasts. Uh, I would also say check out www.certifiedforgotten.com. We are going through a site redesign right now that will hopefully make us look all sharp and fancy and new. But really, my partner and I, Matt Donato, are lucky to be able to run a site that has so much really dynamic film criticism especially from a lot of really young and emerging voices people that are just out of grad school or just out of undergraduate and chock full of ideas and want to kind of work through some stuff they those papers you didn't get a chance to write in school so we're you know i i take claim no particular credit for the quality of writing there we just we're lucky enough that there's a lot of really cool writers that want to see you know want to write about movies that nobody else wants to write about some Mm -hmm. of the pitches we were going to be running in the future are just ridiculous they're wonderful so um support my work fine but please do check out certifiedforgotten.com and support the next generation of horror fans they're crushing it i'm so proud of all of them amazing please do that and we'll link to all that in the show notes as well if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers. Join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. And of course, go to our YouTube channel to look at our Micro Queers horror short coverage and our Horror Queers hangouts, where we uh, have a monthly happy hour with uh, some of our peers to talk about various horror topics. Mm-hmm. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. Apple Podcasts and Spotify are the best ones. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers we are now in february y'all so we're out of scream month there we go <laughs> and we're into new shit so um please subscribe to get episodes on season one of yellow jackets kenneth brenna's new film death on the nile netflix's new entry in the texas chainsaw massacre franchise and for our audio commentary for the month we will be talking about a nightmare on elm street 3 dream warriors mm-hmm. nice so Joe, what can we tease about next week's film? All right, so we move the dial forward another year. We're into 2016, and it's going to be a bit of a coming-of-age-slash-family affair. And that's all you get. Okay, so you have your clue, everyone. Go on the hunt and stay tuned to our socials to see what the pick is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on that note, I until next week, we can cross out the Black Coat's Daughter. Indeed, and cross out horror queers.